CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. everybody welcome to this episode of true crime and cocktails we're so glad you're here as always i am your host lauren ash and as always i am joined by my co-hostess with the most s christy oxborough how you feeling uh i'm better now that as you were speaking in my head i was like oh just full go into a WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> and then as soon as you it, it was like and it's your turn and then i was like oh don't do that don't come into the new year like that. Uh, I'm I'm better now that I've stopped myself <laughs> from just full on going into it. I don't know where I'm at. I don't know what month it is. I am I am everywhere and nowhere because you're everywhere to me. <laughs> um, I shout like out it a Michelle lot. Branch. Who knew? Who yeah. knew? Uh, it is the first episode of the show of 2022. How about it? Yeah, I think it's exciting. It's exciting to be back. It feels like we've been gone a long time. Yeah. But I think that's because our last couple of episodes were not like hard true crime to look into kind of things. There there wasn't like hard research to do. It was just uh, apparently me just getting wasted. That was... That was the how I apparently end every lunar year? Is that a thing? Lunar year. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> new year, new you. New was, year, new you. I, I was like gonna, it. <laughs> I was going to say fiscal year, but then <laughs> I chose lunar sure. instead because sure. I felt like it gave a cooler vibe. I have whiskey in my system. I love that. I might have just said calendar year, but that's not the point. Oh, that's, that's better. Not the point. 
That not the was point. better than both of the ones that I chose. Well, listen, I, I right away, I'm just going to get into it. You've yeah. already mentioned it. What you drinking over there? Oh, I'm uh, I'm doing a cherry whiskey and Coke. Nice. Because it, it felt right. Yeah. It felt right. And I've come a long way because there's ice cubes in this. And I know it fucks with sound, but it makes me delighted. So listen, <laughs> my listen. delight trumped uh, sound. I so think that's, that's where I'm fair. at. That's where I'm at. I think that's fair. You do what's right for you. Now, I have got something very interesting going on over here. Now, I know I had teased that I was going to do another dry January, and I yeah. was steadfast in that. Uh, not yet. Um, so <laughs> 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 we're still yeah. in the first week. It's yeah. so funny. I I was uh, chatting to a to a gal pal, and, and I was like, "Hey, do you want to go for margaritas this this Friday?" And she said, "I thought you're doing Dry January." And I said, "They can always start Saturday." Anyway, so <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, listen. So I've I've just finished off a bottle of Prosecco, but the, there's very little there. And I was like, well, that's going to go in two seconds. So then I've also got a full glass of welcoming back to the show, people, Kimmy C., uh, oh, my favorite nice. wine gentleman on the show, Sauvignon Blanc, for the win. Um, so that'll be nice. You know, I think part of it is, is that we are, I know that there are places in the world uh, where people are listening right now who are back in a, a lockdown situation. And... I think that that is looming for us here. So I was like, you know, I think this is the last week. And so it's not that I've been choosing to be reckless, but I have been choosing to, you know, I have been on a couple patios. It's very chilly in LA, believe it or not. So I have been in in lots of layers on patios because I'm like, you know what? I think by next week we might be in a... A different story. So just yeah. trying to soak up. Get the, your yayas. Getting my yayas out before my yayas yeah. are going to be in these four walls until for the further notice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I get that. I get yeah. that. Uh, we up here uh, in that rectangular like province. Yeah. Um, We were doing so well on numbers that they just stopped talking about them. They stopped posting about them every day. And that felt good because then I just forgot. And it's like you wear a mask wherever you go. You just don't think about it. And then they were like, "Oh yeah, by the way, we had a lot. We had we had over seven hundred. We had the more the most we've ever had in this entire thing since March of twenty twenty. We had that today." And I was like, "I'm sorry, pardon. We're still doing that." Um, <laughs> and now uh, my 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 children are slated to go back to school tomorrow morning. Yikes! We are the only province. In the entire country, sending children back to school. And I know, do do I want to deal with uh, homeschooling and stuff? I don't have the time. So no. Um, <laughs> but and, and dealing with like setting up Zooms and making sure they're doing the homework. Oh, no, thank you. Uh, is it better than the alternative? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um the the beautiful thing, maybe it's karma, maybe it's just the universe being like, you think it's bad now. Uh, the temperature is so cold that uh, there is a good likelihood that the school buses will not be running tomorrow, which means we need to drive our children to and from school. Our oldest, uh, bless his heart, uh, and congrats to him, he does not listen to this, uh, he got his license Hey. Uh, since we uh, last uh, were together. Gotta go. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and he has a car. 
But we have learned the battery seems fine, but something's wrong with the vehicle. I don't know. My husband, bless his heart, is working uh, like mad to figure it out. So my my son has had to borrow a car to go to work because he's been stranded at work twice with a vehicle not starting on him. Uh, and so it was the concern of go to school and then a vehicle not starting at the end of the day. And it has quickly turned into, uh, well, I thought my, this is my son speaking. Uh, he's like, well, I thought just in case I should have a backup plan. So I'm just going to go to school. I'm going to have friends drive me to school so that the car, so there's no problem with the car. And I was like, that is great thinking. Who's driving you home? Well, the thing is, Ma, that's where it starts. The thing is, Ma, <laughs> and that's when I know, ah, shit, he's asking for a ride. Yep. And I know that people are like, how cold can it be? Oh. I I should have done the uh, calculations because I know it's different in Celsius versus Fahrenheit. Uh, it is, with the wind chill, we have been hitting like minus 50 Celsius. I think that there's a there's a point in which it, it actually evens out, believe it or not. Right. Uh, I'm doing it right now. Of course um, you are. It's actually minus 58 Fahrenheit. It actually has gone the other way. So for, for context, dear listeners, minus 58 Fahrenheit, minus 50 Celsius. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just not the way any anything, anything is meant to live. No, no. It yeah. is it is unbearable. Yeah. Uh, and because they're working on my son's car, trying to figure out what's wrong with it, <laughs> that means they're they're putting it in the garage because it's nicer to work in there than it is outside, of course. Yeah. Uh, which means my car, who has become accustomed to a certain lifestyle, got left in the street. And I was like, it's so cold, I'm not going anywhere. And then it's like, joke's on me. I actually have to run out because we need milk. And then the next day, it's like, ah, joke's on me again. I guess we need cat litter and cat food. That's fun. Uh, So I had to take my car out twice. And then today, I was like, I don't have to go anywhere. It's beautiful. And my husband's like, I'm going to go start your car because I've decided I'm putting mine in the street. I'm finally putting yours back in the garage. You take yours out more often. It's it's not fair to you. I'll put yours back in. My car wouldn't start. (laughs) So that's where we're at. It took him all day and like plugging it in and battery booster and all of that to finally like this evening get my car started enough that we could limp it to the garage just to (laughs) just to let it have its time because we're going to need it in the morning because school buses will not run anything minus 40 and below and it's supposed to be minus 45 tomorrow morning so there's, There's a reason I moved to California, everybody. Yep. There's mm-hmm. a reason why. And I yeah. don't complain when I'm on a patio and I'm in multiple layers. It's not yeah. a problem. It's not a problem. Happy to. Happy yeah. to. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, I'm glad that we're together. I'm glad that, yes. again, we're getting some yayas out. And I know that a lot of people, it's a very stressful time uh, again. So we're glad that you're here with us. Come with us. It's going to be a romp, much like the Glee Curse. <laughs> if you haven't checked it out, give it a listen. Uh, and She's if you don't one get, for one. Thank you. If you don't get that joke, it's a callback. All right. So <laughs> before we get into this episode, I yeah. do have to just give a quick mention. So I we talked about resolutions on yeah. the New Year's uh, Countdown and Cocktails episode of the show. Yeah. And I've... I, 
<laughs> I made one since that I did not make on the show. And I think that I I would like to address it very quickly. And yes. then I want to check in about yours as well very quickly. But I, I, out of nowhere, and I don't know what precipitated this, I just decided kind of apropos of nothing, I'm a thrifty gal. Yeah. Always have been real saver of money and whatnots. Um, still drive a 2013 car that's very beat up. Anyway, uh, I only give that as an example of, you know, I, I'm, I'm not somebody who says they're thrifty and then it's like, are you thrifty? Um, but I, I just decided, I was like, you know what? I am going to overhaul my wardrobe because I deserve to. And why shouldn't I? Yes. Oh, I like that. I think it was also because before the break, I had a couple of in-person meetings. This was also before Omicron had gotten to California. There had, were no cases here at the time. Um, so we were still in that blissful phase where if you were fully vaxxed and boosted, it felt like you could take on the world. But anyway, um, so but as I was going to these in-person meetings, I realized, oh, my gosh, I have business meetings and I I have been in the house for two years wearing mostly my own merch. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I think I need to, 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 to add some pieces. And I just went on this tear buying clothes. And here was the other caveat. Things that I would never think that I would wear or that would work. This is the other caveat. And I'll tell you this. I pushed my boundaries and I am in love with everything that I've bought. I haven't had anything that I've decided to send back. There's only been a couple things and it was like a fit issue. But in terms of like, yes, did I post a picture on, on Instagram in baggy ripped jeans and a pleather bra? I did. And I would have never thought that that would have been a choice for me. I am in love with it. And I'm so excited for the first time because I get very overwhelmed at the idea of going through my closet. I'm like, you know what? I'm going through that. This is one of my plans for this week. If I haven't worn it in a year... And if it doesn't fit or if yeah. it's in any sort of disrepair, it goes because I yeah. always feel this guilt. Like it's like I spent money on it. It's probably still wearable. There's And it's like, you know what? No, new year, new you, out with the old, in with the new. You work hard, Lauren. You can afford to buy yourself some new pieces of clothing and you should. You deserve it. Dress the way you want to feel. Feel like a million bucks is the point. The clothes oh, did not I... cost me a million bucks. <laughs> Oh, I like this a lot. I like the energy. Yeah. I like all of it. I like the energy of you're going to treat yourself. Yeah. You know? Uh, I, and I, I and The fact that it's one of those, like, calls back to your childhood where you're like, I feel like, I just feel like I shouldn't do this. And it's like, we're telling that child, no, it's okay. Come with me and you'll see. <laughs> Yes. And it's yeah. so funny you bring up uh, childhood because what I keep saying is, I'm like, this is how I dreamt of dreaming when I was in high school. But I believed that I was so fat that I couldn't possibly, the joke's on me, I was not. No. Um, but I really like, if you had asked me, it would have been like, if I could dress like Gwen Stefani, that would have been it. I just thought that she looked so amazing, always, no matter what she was wearing. And yeah. now I'm like, well, you know what? You didn't do it then. And this is a love letter to teenage me saying, hey, I'm going to do it now because you didn't do it then. And you oh. feel fabulous. You know what I mean? 
oh, I love this for you. I love this for high school you. Yeah. High school you would be high-fiving right now. She would oh, be yeah. overjoyed. Overjoyed. Um, and she probably would have some food stuck in her braces. Um, <laughs> oh. Yeah, she was sweet. Uh, but listen, <laughs> that's my update. I'm very excited about it. Yeah. Uh, now, I know that you've also made a big change since New Year's. Yes, I have. Oh, God, even talking about it makes me sweat. I know. Um, I just, It's just so funny that there are people that are going to be like, and? But there are going to be listeners who are like, oh, shit. I... I ordered a lot of stickers. Um, I I believe it was Redbubble. I could be wrong. I'd have to look into it if people, uh, yeah, if people were interested, I'd have to look into it. Might have been T Public. Christy, stop. I believe it was T Public. Stop it. So <laughs> I ordered a ton of stickers in like late last year. And I was like, I want to put some on my laptop. But I was like, I can't. I've never been that one. I can't put a sticker on a thing. I can't. I can't. It just doesn't feel right because what if I hate putting it there? Then you take it off, but then where do you put it? You've wasted it. It's the fear of wasting something. So instead of instead of wasting it, you just don't use it at all, which is essentially you're then wasting it. Uh, so I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to do it. So one day I had a, I had a simple one, uh, uh, one of our stickers on it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to take that one off. I'm going to just go for it. And I wiped down the laptop and I took all of my stickers. I laid them out like I was a child with my sticker collection. And I laid them on to see where they fit, what I liked, what I didn't. And I I now have a laptop covered in stickers. And which ones I didn't get the chance to put on my laptop. Because again, I bought a lot of them. I put on... <laughs> My calendar, my agenda for the year. So Cute. I've just decided this is who I am because I've decided this calendar is very helpful to me and I use it every day. It helps me remember, you know, what I'm supposed to do, both home and work. And so uh, that's where I've gone. I'm glad that we didn't ask how I've done about the New Year's resolution I set because I haven't done it yet. <laughs> I will. Yeah. I will. But again, I'm... Uh, I've got almost almost all of my main crushes are somehow in that uh, sticker collection. Like I got a shout out to Speed, of course, for Keanu. I got a shout out to Clueless because I love that movie and because I love Paul Rudd. Uh, I've got a Dave Grohl dressed as Thor, which feels like a two in one. I love I got, that. I got a Jack Black in there. I've got one, uh, like a shout out to Overboard, Kurt Russell. Oh, that gosh. one specifically is for the Blanche list because I don't know if he's on there or not. I don't believe he, he is. should be uh, should like be. there's a shout out to friends, Matt LeBlanc. Like there's just a shout out uh, to so many things that I love. And uh, the one that gets center stage is Mashady Pines Golden Girls reference. Uh, it had to go on there. There was no if ands or buts. It just had to be. And uh I, I I still get a little sick when I look <laughs> look at it to see what I've done, but I'm glad that I did it because it always makes me smile because I look at a different sticker every time I'm opening the laptop and never fails to uh, bring me some joy. 
I love this yeah. for you. This is a huge change. And I share yeah. that same anxiety as you. I, I can never put a sticker on anything. It's always made me feel very anxious. Uh, we've talked about this on the show before. So yeah. I think that's huge growth. I think it's yeah. very exciting. And I love that this is how you're gra- grabbing the new year by the throat and saying, I am here. I, I That yeah. got away from me. Um, <laughs> but, but listen. Yeah. Listen, we would be remiss if we didn't address this. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, speaking of the Golden Girls, I think we, we do need to take a, a, a quick moment and pour one out for the legend, the icon, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, undeniable, unstoppable uh, Miss Betty White. Yeah. Um, my husband was the one who told me like seconds before you texted me. Yeah. You texted me a, are you sitting down? Yeah. Or, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, I've just heard. Uh, the the joke being that he he told me and I was like, well, that's not real. And then he's like, yeah, yeah, it is. And I just said, oh, oh man, we're going to be flooded with messages. And he just turned to me and went, that's that's how I found out it was on one of your pages. <laughs> and I was like, damn, wow, go True Crew. They uh, they were informative. I love it. Uh, and I just went, oh, oh, that's really sad. Yeah. Oh, end of an era. Okay. And he was like, okay. And I was like, I mean, I'm like, I did not know her personally. And he's like, you're allowed to feel whatever you want to feel. And I was like, I'm fine. It's fine. I did not know her personally. And then I commented and I said, you know, she loved animals so much. So I said, I think I'm going to find an animal charity that she liked and donate to them. Or maybe I'll donate to my, to one of a local one, uh, and do that way instead. And as I was talking to him about it, I was just like, I fully sobbed and just went into a, cause I think that's what she would have liked. And I broke down and he was like, you are allowed to feel these things. I was like, it doesn't feel like I'm allowed to feel these things. But uh, yeah, devastation. I I did not take it well. I had two solid cries yeah. in under an hour. Yeah. Uh, just enough time to like get myself back to where I was. Uh, she was just felt so pure. Yeah. And just like there, there is not a part of my life that I can think of that she wasn't there in some respect because I've been watching Golden Girls from the beginning when I was too young to get that there was a lot of boning going on in that home. Lots <laughs> A lot of, of boning. Yeah. Um, I stuck with the ladies into Golden Palace uh, with Don Cheadle. Shout out, Don Cheadle. That got weird and unnecessary. Um, I mean, we've got like Lake Placid, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite Betty White quotes. Um, oh God, what is it? It's like, uh, if I had a dick, this is the moment where I'd tell you to suck it. (laughs) Um, which is one of my favorite things she's ever said. Uh, she played Mrs. Claus in a cartoon short and I could not, uh, have been more, I felt like no one embodies who I feel Mrs. Claus is like uh like Betty White like that just was just perfect for me oh god hot in cleveland i got into the proposal like come on like she was just always there 
Yeah. Always killing it. Boston legal. Like, I could go on forever. Uh, she was an icon. And not just, icon. you know, not just for her acting and, like, her longevity and just how fucking smart and funny and talented. Also, like, her love of animals. Her in, I think it was, like, the 50s giving an african-american dancer a shot and somebody saying oh he doesn't get any more screen time and her going yeah he does and she gave him more just in spite which i respect that uh she divorced a man because he didn't support her career yeah i mean i just how do you not completely love and respect someone like that you know Oh, God. I mean, trailblazer, truly. I mean, as and yeah. for myself, speaking as a woman who has, uh, you know, b- b- devoted her life to a career in comedy and, t- you know, comedic television specifically. Yeah, I mean, she paved the way. And I feel like I always get very emotional about um, the, the people who come before us that, that change things so that they can, th- yeah. so that then the next, you know, people who come have an easier go. And then those people do things to make the next, you know, that that kind of whole thing I think is a very powerful kind of concept and, and makes me very emotional, obviously. Um, and I, I think that, yeah, like listening to her talk too about how, at the time that she was a producer, when she was very, you know, young and starting in TV, which was unheard of for a woman to be a producer on a TV show. Right. And she also talked about to get to be the comedic part. And I thought that's such an interesting thing to point out, too, because that was she was kind of the beginning of that. Her and Lucy were kind of the beginning of these women who were like super smart, super funny, were like, I'm going to yeah. produce this because why wouldn't I? And yeah. and they did. And it it really did. She is one of the people that really did change the game for women in, in television, for women in comedy. So yeah, what a what an amazing legacy. What a loss um for, for everyone, obviously. But I think for the the community, the true crew who listens to this show and for the two yeah. of us, uh definitely a loss, I think, that we we all we all share in. And I know there there's also been people who are like 99 years like you can't be upset about a you know such a full life but i think that the the thing is is that she kept going till the end so it didn't feel like she was done yet it felt like it was like yeah. she's she's got more to go so i think um i think that's also a testament to just how beloved talented and hilarious she was that at 99 yeah. people are like she's gone too soon and i think that that's that's really again that's that's the testament to who betty white was as someone who yeah. did not personally know her, but definitely was affected and impact to, impacted by her. So let's raise a glass. Let's let's pour one out. Cheers one out to Betty White. She changed the game. And uh, she also said, oh, here, I'm going to go now. Oh. She said when she was doing the the uh, Inside the Actors Studio, she was interviewed by, by James yeah. Lipton. And the one question he asked everybody is like, if heaven exists when you arrive at the pearly gates, what do you want God to say to you? And she said, ha. <laughs> It's too early to start crying, Ash. She said, uh, I want him to say, hi, Betty, here's Alan, who is her third husband who died and was the love of her life. And Mm -hmm. I just, I mean, that just destroyed me. So anyway, I hope that they're together. I hope that all the gals are having some cheesecake on the lanai. (laughs) (laughs) I had done so goddamn well. I thought I was going to get through without crying. I talked about legacy. Goddamn it. Here's the thing. This is where uh, Mama Oxborough did it right. I purposely swayed away from any discussion of Alan. I thought I, could, <laughs> I, 
got cocky. I got through talking about like her legacy and impact on on women in comedy. And I didn't cry. And then I was like, I think I can talk about Alan. Nope. Bye. Their their love. What a gift. What what a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I do believe it was me explaining Alan and their relationship to my husband that caused massive cry number two. (laughs) I just... I get it. Yeah. Well, look. Yeah. On that note, let's get into the fucking murder. (laughs) (laughs) You did promise in the... uh, in the countdown. <laughs> I was like, don't you worry. There's going to be so much fucking murder. Yeah. Um, oh, actually, I think you were dressed like a little Spider-Man boy at the time. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. Of so course. I do believe that was the hoot nanny. but yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's how, that's how I'm going to tell time now in my brain is what makeup was Lauren wearing at the time? I also feel like there's pre-little Spider-Man in post, and that's just the truth. Um, <laughs> this episode, dear listeners, yeah. we're, of course, talking about Murder Among the Mormons, which is a uh, a documentary if you've not checked it out yet. This, of course, was our December patrons poll pick. Um, we're over on Patreon, patreon.com slash cocktails, where we do bonus episodes, we do monthly live Q&As, and we have a monthly poll where you can vote for one of the shows that we're going to cover each month on this main feed. Uh, and this was the winner for December, so we are covering it here now. So do not worry if you don't know uh, anything about this. I'm about to tell you. So... In October 1985, three bombs went off in Salt Lake City, Utah. The the bombs. The bombs claimed two lives and left a third victim, Mark Hoffman, in critical condition. But as investigators looked for connections between the bombings, they quickly learned that the third victim wasn't really a victim at all. It turns out that Mark Hoffman had planned and executed the attacks. So why did a 30-year-old mild-mannered husband and father plant multiple bombs? And how do the bombs connect to forgeries worth millions of dollars? Christy Oxborough investigates. <laughs> what a roller coaster this episode is. We have said multiple times before in other shows, uh, oh, we hope you're not coming in hot, fresh on this one uh, as a first-time listener. Uh, but this time I hope so. I hope there, <laughs> I hope there are some that uh, are coming in uh, for the first time and this is how they meet us. Well, we've is already this like. is we've encapsulated a lot of a lot of our 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 vibe. We've been supportive yeah. of each other. I've cried. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's been truly chaotic, and now yeah. we're into the case. So I feel like yeah. it's right. It feels right oh, to me. Yeah, this it's just it's giving you all of us in thirty minutes. There you go. So what more could Enjoy you ask for? Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Uh, before I do mention the case, I have realized my error. I did mention Boston Legal. But I forgot to mention another hero of mine, so I would be remiss if I didn't shout out one Miss Candy Bergen. (laughs) Thank you for calling her Candy. (laughs) In 2022, I'm far too familiar. (laughs) And (laughs) 2022, far too familiar? I love that. I think that should be our shared slogan for the year. (laughs) I just, it's just where I'm at. Mentally, and I'm just like, life's too short. I'm going to call her Candy out of the sake of for her to know the deep love that's there, the deep love and respect. I'm not some Yahoo who doesn't know you and calls you Candace. Of course. And I referred to Chris Evans as Chrissy Evs recently, so we're both (laughs) in this together. 
2022, far too familiar. <laughs> oh, far too 22? Fam- no, stop it. It's not. Yep. It doesn't always have to be a thing. No. So I am going to start this episode off with a disclaimer. I am not a practicing member of any organized religion. And so my knowledge of most religions is quite lacking. So I came into this episode with nothing but an interest in learning as much as I could in order to share it with our dear listeners. And while this episode is going to focus on Mormonism, I'm going to say it even though I don't know that it needs to be said, but any comments about the suspect in this case does not reflect our thoughts or opinions on Mormons in general. If you are a previous listener to this show, I hope that by now you know that we are not the types to generalize an entire group of people in any negative way, and that we don't take a person's religion into account when judging that person's character. And if you're a new listener to the show, welcome, and just know that sometimes we like to give a small disclaimer so people don't try to take our words to mean something that they don't. And we don't always cry off the top, but I like the energy we've brought into today. So I hope it's a thing. I hope we get so touched at the beginning of all of them that, again, you're allowed to feel. Yeah. So there it is. There There it is. is. Now, before we can get into the murders and the forgeries that are the basis of this true crime case, we need to look into the history of the Mormon religion in order to truly understand the devastation that the suspect caused. So to start with Mormonism, we need to start with Joseph Smith. And I promise I'm doing my best to make this just a little less boring than what the documentaries were. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was fine. It was just, there was a lot of things that I was like, I'm sorry, what? But it's fine. I'm doing my best. You're doing great. Just getting by. Mm -hmm. Joseph Smith Jr. was born December 23rd, 1805 in Vermont. At the age of 14, Smith claimed he received a vision from God telling him to not join any Christian denominational churches. Three years later, on September 22, 1823, Smith was allegedly visited by an angel named Moroni, who told Smith he had been selected to translate a sacred text which was written around the the 4th century. It was called the Book of Mormon and was named after Moroni's father, Mormon. The book contained information about the ancient people living in the Americas, and it it was inscribed on golden plates. Smith was told that he would find the plates buried in a hill near Palmyra, New York. Moroni allegedly appeared to Smith multiple times over the next several years, guiding him to find the plates. Smith retrieved the plates in September 1827 and began translating them. The Book of Mormon was published in 1830. After the book's publication, Mormonism began to spread and grow rapidly. So Smith set up Mormon communities in Ohio, Illinois, and Missouri. Many took great offense to some of these new ideas. So in February 1844, Smith, along with his brother, were jailed on charges of treason in Illinois. During their incarceration, both brothers were killed by an anti-Mormon mob in June 1844. After Smith's death, Brigham Young became his successor. 
Young first joined the Mormons at the age of 32 after the death of his first wife in 1833. Two years later, he was ordained as one of the original members of the church governing body known as the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and four years after that, he became the Quorum's president. Brigham Young side note! In the early years of Mormonism, it was custom for men to enter into plural marriages, and while Young resisted this custom at first, he later came to see it as his duty, and one might say, he embraced it. He would go on to have 55 wives. 55. He would also have a total of 56 children. Wow. Yeah. In 1846, Young migrated about 16,000 Mormons from Illinois to Utah, which is roughly 1,300 miles or 2,200 kilometers. The group initially tried to settle in New York, but after receiving harassment and violence from many of the locals, the group moved on to Missouri before once again leaving due to threats from the local residents. The group officially settled in the Salt Lake region, and Brigham Young founded Salt Lake City. In 1848, Young was selected as the church's president, and in 1850, he was appointed governor of Utah. Hmm. But in 1858, he had to step down after President James Buchanan declared Utah to be in a state of rebellion. The Mormon church came to be known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or LDS for short, and according to Wikipedia, as of December 2020, the LDS Church has over 31,000 congregations worldwide with just over 16.6 million memberships. The headquarters for the LDS remains in Salt Lake City, Utah. And now that we've very briefly covered the early history of the LDS, let's get right into the crimes that brought us all here today. Yes. Around 6.45 a.m. on October 15, 1985, Hal Passy and his son Bruce were riding in the elevator of the Judge Building in North Salt Lake City. Also in the elevator was a white male wearing a Kelly Green Letterman-type jacket with brown leather sleeves, blue jeans, and tennis shoes. The man was carrying a brown paper package that was addressed to Stephen Christensen. One and a half hours later, at 8.15 a.m., a bomb went off on the sixth floor of the judge building. A secretary in the office took shrapnel in one of her legs, but Stephen Christensen was killed in the blast. The bomb tore a massive hole in Stephen's chest and, a, and lodged a nail in his brain. Oh, my God. Stephen Fred Christensen was born January 9th, 1954, in Salt Lake City. He was one of eight siblings. Stephen's father, Fred Christensen, founded a men's clothing store in the 1960s called Mr. Max. As of March 2021, there are still 10 Mr. Max locations in Utah and Arizona. Stephen was a stockbroker who in 1976 married Terry Loran uh, Romney, the couple had four sons, Joshua, Justin, Jared, and Stephen. I read that Terry was pregnant with their fourth son at the time of the bombing, but I couldn't confirm that. Stephen was described as gentle, kind, compassionate, and thoughtful. At the time of his death, Stephen was just 31 years old. Oh, God. At, oh, I should have looked up how to pronounce this. Help us all. At 4630... 
Nanaloa Drive, just 9.8 miles or 15.7 kilometers away, Gary Sheets left his house at 6.50 a.m. to drive his son to volleyball practice. Gary's wife, Kathy, went for her usual morning walk with a neighbor named Faye Cotter. Kathy then went to the bank and stopped to pick the newspaper up from her mailbox. She parked her car in their garage and walked towards her front door. On her front sidewalk, Kathy found a brown paper package. She picked it up, and seconds later, it exploded. The Mm. bomb went off at 9.28 a.m. Kathleen, or Kathy Webb Sheets, was born July 31, 1935, in Salt Lake City. She was described as thoughtful, generous, and community-minded. She married J. Gary Sheets on June 30, 1958, and the couple had three children, Roger, Joe, and Gretchen. Kathy was a beloved teacher who earned a bachelor's degree in elementary education from the University of Utah, and after teaching for several years, Kathy chose to leave the profession to be a stay-at-home mom. Something I read about Kathy that I found very endearing is that she loved Murder, She Wrote. And to that I say, same, Kathy. (sighs) Yeah. Same. Something else about Kathy that I found very charming. Kathy was very close with her sister, Joan Gordon, and Joan said they used to call themselves the Lovely Sisters. Well, apparently the Lovely Sisters traveled together quite often, and Joan said they would always get asked, aren't you sorry you didn't bring your husbands along? To which both sisters would say, quote, not on your life. (laughs) 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 And I find that so charming that I can't stand it. Uh, So very cute. Right. Uh, that just feels like us. Yeah. You know, it just, it's, it just de- felt, it's the vibe. It's the same energy, and I, I love it. 100%. Uh, at the time of her death, Kathy was 50 years old. So one mo- bomb going off is enough to rattle any police force, but two in just over an hour starts a bit of a panic. Investigators start to look into whether or not the victims were connected, and it turns out that Kathy Sheets' husband, Gary, used to work with Stephen Christensen. Stephen and Gary were both officers in an investment company called Coordinated Financial Services, or CFS, which had about 3,000 investors. Shortly before the bombings, CFS went bankrupt, so investigators started to believe that maybe a disgruntled investor might be behind the bombings. Gary Sheets believed that as well, When he was first interviewed after the bombs, he said, quote, my friend's dead and my wife's dead because of a situation I got them into. Investigators knew immediately that both bombs were from the same perpetrator as both were in a similar brown paper package. Both were triggered by an electrical timing device and both bombs were equal in force to two sticks of dynamite and nails had been added to each bomb just to increase the shrapnel. The day after the bombs, on October 16, 1985, 24-year-old Brad Carter left the mall and was walking uphill to his truck, which was parked near the Deseret Gym at 200 North Main Street. Partway up the hill, he saw a white male, average height, getting into a blue sports car. The man opened the driver's side door and leaned in, keeping one foot on the pavement. The man appeared to be looking for something and was shifting something in the driver's seat. Brad continued to walk past and cross the street when he heard an explosion. 
When he turned around, Brad saw smoke and debris near what was left of the blue sports car. The man who Brad had seen near the car was lying in the street with his legs bent, a gash on his head, and a wound in his chest. The man had injuries to his legs, and the bone of one of his fingers was exposed. Since the car was on fire, Brad and two passers-by helped move the man across the street, lying him on the grass in front of the gym. People came rushing out of the gym with towels to put on the man's wounds, so Brad ripped open this man's shirt to get to the wounds and noticed the man was wearing temple garments, which leads me to a temple garments side note. Thank you. Temple garments are a sort of underwear that LDS members wear after they take part in an endowment ceremony, which, according to Wikipedia, is designed for participants to become kings, queens, priests, and priestesses in the afterlife. It involves two ceremonies in which the participants take a scripted take part in a, a scripted reenactment of the biblical creation and fall of Adam and Eve. The ceremony also includes washing and anointing the temple garden garments, which members are expected to wear under their clothing day and night for the rest of their lives. The garments are sacred and not suitable for public display. So once Brad sees this victim was wearing temple garments, he knew the victim was a member of the LDS. And as a member himself, Brad used a vial of consecrated oil, which he always carried, to anoint the man saying, quote, I command you to live until proper medical help gets here. According to the LDS, consecrated oil is always olive oil, as it is considered to be the cleanest, purest, brightest burning, longest lasting of all animal and vegetable oils. It is used to anoint the sick or afflicted. And I guess that was a silent side note. <laughs> <laughs> The bomb, which was now the third to go off in less than two days, went off at 2.18 p.m., and the victim, who was rushed to hospital in critical condition, was 30-year-old Mark Hoffman. Mark William Hoffman was born December 7, 1954, in Salt Lake City. He had an older sibling and was raised in a devout Mormon home. He said that he had a bland but happy and typical Mormon adolescence. He grew up liking camping, water skiing, coin collecting, and hunting rabbits. Mark graduated from high school in 1973 with plans to go to college and become a doctor. In 1974, Mark went on an LDS mission to southwest England. And Mark was very devoted to the church and spent hours on the road proselytizing, which is a very fancy word. That basically describes when someone tries to get someone else to convert from one religion or opinion or belief to another. Apparently, there are reports that get released every year that list the number of hours that each LDS missionary spent proselytizing. I like to throw that in twice to show people that I really know how to pronounce it. I'm it so proud of you. It only took a couple of goes on the Google where you you play the sound to hear it a couple of times. Proselytizing. Yeah, proselytizing. Exactly. Yep. I I will never show my notes and how a lot of it's written phonetically. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I do that too. I do that too. Whatever helps, you know. Yes. Uh, in 1974, out of the 208 missionaries at the time, Mark was ranked 49th. So he was out there hustling. Yeah. Mark fell in love with a girl in college, but for some reason, his parents did not approve of her. 
So in April 1979, Mark started to date a freshman at Utah State named Dora Lee Olds, who was known as Dory. They met in the fall of 1978 in the laundry room of Mark's apartment complex, but did not start a relationship until April the next year. After a whirlwind courtship, Mark and Dory were married in September 1979. The couple had three children, and at the time of the bombing, Dory was pregnant with the couple's fourth child. The children have asked not to be named, as they currently prefer to live in anonymity, so I have respected that decision. Now, Mark has had an interest in Mormon memorabilia since his childhood. When Mark was just 13 years old, he purchased his very first piece of memorabilia in 1967. He paid $250, which is equivalent to just over $2,000 in 2022, for a $5 note from the Kirtland Safety Society, a bank that was created by Mormon founder Joseph Smith. The banknote is even signed by Smith himself. In his adulthood, Mark would travel to small bookstores, combing through the shelves looking for Mormon memorabilia. In March 1980, Mark purchased an old Bible from a man in Salt Lake City. And when I say old, I mean a Cambridge edition of the King James Bible from 1668. Whoa! So Mark brings this Bible home and has it sitting on the dining room table. His wife, Dory, looks through it, and she notices some of the pages are stuck together with a black glue-like substance. Mark managed to pry off the top sheet, and using a razor blade, he separated the pages. Between the pages, he found a paper that had been folded into fourths and sealed with glue. Feeling this paper would be incredibly important, Mark left the folded paper sealed and took it to a man named Jeff Simmons on April 17, 1980, just two weeks before Mark was set to take his medical medical school exam and entrance exams. There we go. Jeff Simmons was a curator of special collections and archives at Utah State, as well as an acquaintance of Mark's. Jeff carefully opened the paper to reveal what appeared to be a transcript from Professor Charles Anton at Columbia University. Historical side note! Yes! So when LDS founder Joseph Smith first needed to get the word out about the new religion, he knew the way to do that was get as many copies of the Book of Mormon out into the world as possible. Unfortunately, Smith didn't have any money. Enter a farmer named Martin Harris. Now, Martin fully, fully bought into Mormonism. He was ready to go. He was willing to sell his farm, which at the time was estimated to be worth about $10,000, and give all of the money to Smith so he could publish the Book of Mormon. While Martin's wife was less jazzed about that plan, (laughs) so to appease her, Martin asked for Smith to show him the gold plates so he could prove to his wife that Smith was totally legit. But Smith refused to reveal the plates, but instead offered to show Martin a transcript from a part of the book that Smith himself copied from the gold plates. Martin decided to get some experts to look at the transcript, so he took it to Professor Charles Anton at Columbia University. The professor looked over the document and said the symbols weren't from any known language, and the document was likely fake. Smith, of course, said the symbols were actually a shorthand that the professor just wasn't familiar with. So in the end, Martin ended up giving Smith $5,000, which helped get about 3,000 copies of the Book of Mormon published. And because I know that all my math homies want to know, 
Martin's $5,000 is equivalent to about $151,000 in 2022. Wow. And I'm so sorry for calling you my math homies. I <laughs> Am I sorry? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's I'm you know what honestly I'm conflicted. <laughs> I don't know where she's at, but apparently 2022 is where she's at. Yep, new year, new you. Yep, I'm just, just, just going to I'm just going to keep saying that. I hope uh, good. Because yeah. if, if we say it enough times, I'll just accept it, you know? I'll yeah. just accept it. So some say that the professor wrote down his true feelings about the authenticity of the characters on the transcript, but that Martin Harris destroyed the letter. Is it true? We don't know. It happened in 1830. We have no way of knowing. Some people believe it. Some people don't. It's not relevant to our story. So moving on. <laughs> So this folded paper that Mark allegedly found in the super old Bible was believed to be the transcript that Smith gave to Martin. Now, since no copy or image of this document has ever been seen before, Jeff Simmons compared the document to a book that had described the transcript, and the document in his hands seemed to match every detail perfectly. The document was called the Anton transcript. So Jeff freaks out. To have this never-before-seen document, and the LDS hears about it, and they freak out, because for them, it legitimizes Joseph Smith's story about the birth of Mormonism. So everyone is excited, and the church agrees to pay Mark Hoffman $20,000 for it, which is equivalent to about $67,000 in 2022. Right. And that was the moment that Mark Hoffman decided to forego medical school and focus all of his time on being a documents dealer. And with such a home run on his first document, he soon became established in the collector community, choosing to focus on books and Mormon currency. In the fall of 1984, Mark's luck continued when he found a letter transcribed in 1830 by Martin Harris. You remember Martin? We just literally talked about him. <laughs> Well, in this letter, Joseph Smith was describing the moment when he first found the gold plates. He said, quote, The figure transfigured himself from a white salamander in the bottom of a hole and struck me three times. But the thing is, Joseph Smith had previously stated that he was led to the gold plates by the angel Moroni. And this became such a huge part of Mormonism that there is a statue of Moroni on top of nearly every LDS temple. So the idea that it wasn't Moroni, but rather a salamander, completely undermines some of the major tenets of the Mormon faith. This document, which came to be known as the White Salamander Letter, was something that Mark Hoffman knew would embarrass the LDS church. It was first offered to Don Schmidt, the LDS church chief archivist, in exchange for a $10 Mormon gold piece, which were privately issued tokens used between 1848 and 1860. Then he changed the offer and instead said he would trade the salamander letter for a copy of the Book of Commandments, which is the earliest published book to contain the revelations of Joseph Smith. Schmidt rejected the offer Mark eventually sold the letter to stockbroker Stephen Christensen for $40,000. Christensen planned to have the letter authentic authenticated and then donate to the LDS church. Interesting. So now we have some background on Mark Hoffman and his 
uncanny ability to find super rare documents from Mormon history. Let's head back to the bombings in 1985. Mark gets seriously hurt after a bomb goes off in his car, a Toyota MR2. I don't think that's important. It's a fact that I learned, so it's a fact you all have to learn, like it or not. I appreciate that's it. How this, that's how this works. Um, and at I there we go. He's taken to a nearby hospital in critical condition. As investigators are looking for a connection, they learn that on the morning the first two bombs went off, Mark was supposed to have a meeting with Stephen Christensen. So they were very interested in interviewing Mark Hoffman. And thankfully, Mark's condition begins to improve and he was finally able to speak with police. At this point, Mark was known as a respected dealer in rare books and documents, particularly ones relating to Mormon history. Mark told police, quote, I was going to sell some documents to an attorney here in town. The documents I intended to sell were in my car when it exploded. Mark also told the police, prior to the explosion, he had noticed a brown pickup truck following him. Mark was able to describe the truck in great detail, including that it was a full-size brown pickup with some damage to the right front bumper. He didn't get the entire license plate number, but said that it started with a TW and there were also two threes in it. Mark said the driver of the truck was a white male, about 35 to 40, wearing a white shirt. Investigators look into Mark's story, but can't find any leads. So Mark is released from the hospital and despite his injuries, ends up making a full recovery. But investigators were determined to figure out who was responsible for two murders and an attempted murder. So now that three members of the LDS are involved, investigators wonder if that is somehow a connection. So they approach members of the LDS and tell them about the man that Hal and Bruce Passy had seen in the elevator shortly before the first bomb went off. A Mormon historian named Ed Ashman said that he knew a man that fit that physical description, and the man even had a Kelly Green Letterman jacket. The man in question was the third victim, Mark Hoffman. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Hoffman. I know. Oh, this is, I mean, I know that we're only, you know, we've only just begun, but I feel yeah. like it, there's just so many interesting twists and turns with this yeah. guy. It's fascinating to me. The audacity. Oh, <laughs> And he's just getting started? <laughs> That's what I mean. I know. Oh, my gosh. Listen. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break, grab a drink, hit the can, and we're going to be right back talking more about Mark Hoffman and Murder Among the Mormons on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. 
The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Boy, my voice got really high on that welcome. (laughs) Um, We're, of course, talking about murder among the Mormons. Before Mm -hmm. the break, we were talking about... The audacity of this man, Mark Hoffman, and Christy did remind me that we're just getting started. So what uh, what comes yeah. next? Well, <laughs> brace yourselves because you're not going to like him. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we always go into them knowing we're not going to like him. Yeah. So investigators have just discovered that the third bombing victim might actually be the bomber himself. In fact, Hoffman was already on their radar as a suspect when they first interviewed him at the hospital. His dad, Bill Hoffman, frankly asked Mark if he had committed the crimes. Bill said that if he did, Mark should turn himself in and ask for the death penalty because, quote, that's the only way your soul can be saved. Whoa. Mark insisted he was innocent. So Bill mortgaged his house to help pay for his son's legal fees. Uh, yep. <laughs> if we're oh going to go high-pitched voice. Yep. So investigators get a search warrant from Mark Hoffman's house, and they end up finding the green jacket and seizing more than 30 boxes of evidence. So investigators start to think Mark Hoffman really could be their suspect, But for a man who was described numerous times as mild-mannered and, quote, a nice family man, what on earth would his motive be? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Remember that Anton transcript, the super old document that Mark magically found in 1980 and then sold to the LDS church for 20 grand? It turns out the transcript was nothing but a forgery. Jesus. In fact, nearly every document that Hoffman ever sold was fake. And remember how the Anton transcript was found inside a Bible by Hoffman's wife? Well, since Hoffman's the one who planted it there, he made his wife an unknowing accomplice by having her discover the document. But if you ask Hoffman, he says, quote, I didn't feel like I was using her. So she didn't know that it was... She did not know. Oh, God. He fully, he fully set her up so he could be like, my wife found this. And wow. she would be like, she could give the story of how she magically found this. Because it's a lot sketchier when you're like, I totally found this. So, yeah. Wow. I also, uh, I'm sure people have noticed, but I would like to point out, when when we thought he was just a victim, I referred to him as Mark. For the rest of this... That fucker is Hoffman. <laughs> Thank you for that delineation. I love that. <laughs> Not too familiar anymore. Yes. I don't- <laughs> yes. I don't know what's wrong with me, but that's... Uh, nothing. Absolutely that's where we're nothing. At. That's where we're at. So, 
not everything that Hoffman sold in his career as a documents dealer was fake. He did, in fact, buy and sell genuine documents, but it turns out that he only did that to cover the fact that Hoffman had an incredible skill at making forgeries. Now, when I first heard this story, I was immediately skeptical that one man claimed to find multiple never-before-seen documents, and it made me wonder how no one could possibly question the legitimacy of this man's product. But Hoffman's forgeries were so good that he was fooled, that he fooled countless experts. That is, until George Throckmorton. Now, George is a forensic documents examiner, and if I may add, a fucking badass. <laughs> In the documentary, he said that if someone brings him a document and they are adamant that it's authentic, he will do everything in his power to prove otherwise. And same goes for if they bring a document that they believe is fake. He will bust his ass to prove that it's not. And honestly, there is something about the attitude that is almost like doing something out of spite that I really respond to. <laughs> I always respond to that. Yeah. Uh, not to mention, at the time of Hoffman's case, George was never asked to help with the case. He just started doing his own research about it because it raised some red flags for him. It wasn't until he was approached by a professor of church history that he officially got involved in the case. When the White Salamander letter first came out, George ripped apart the supposed expert who authenticated it. East Coast document dealer Kenneth Rendell said he believed the letter was real because, quote, the letter was examined under ultraviolet light and the ink fluoresced in accordance with other inks of this period. But then George pointed out ink doesn't fluoresce it luminesces. And not only that, you're supposed to use infrared light, not ultraviolet. And if that isn't bad enough, George says the ink from that time period should never luminesce or fluoresce. So then it just seems that Mark Hoffman got incredibly lucky based on the supposed experts that were chosen to authenticate his work. George worked closely with a second document examiner named William Flynn to examine the salamander letter for themselves, and after 110 hours of examination, George noticed some of the letters had cracks in the ink, and when they went back through all the documents that Hoffman had handled, cracked ink came up time and time again. So it was official, the white salamander letter was fake. George Throckmorton spent 16 months going over more than 600 documents in the Hoffman case. So if the White Salamander letter was fake, then it's likely other documents for forgeries too, right? Well, months after supposedly discovering the Anton transcript, Hoffman's luck seemed to continue. In February 1981, he found another important document in LDS history, which brings us to another historical side note. Yes! As you may recall, Joseph Smith was the founder of Mormonism. Now, when Smith was murdered in 1844, his chief lieutenant, Brigham Young, took over. However, at the time of Smith's death, he had a son, Joseph Smith 
the third, that some believe should have been Smith's successor. But at the time, Smith's son was only 11 years old. So Brigham Young took over the LDS leadership, moved thousands of members to Utah, while Smith's widow and son stayed in Missouri. Now, they remained in the Mormon faith. However, they refused to recognize polygamy or plural marriage, as Mormons prefer to call it, and they had no temple. This new church came to be called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or RLDS, and was considered smaller than the LDS Church. While the LDS went on to become quite wealthy with millions of members, the RLDS has about 200,000 members. But smaller or not, the RLDS believed that Smith's son was the real successor and that they were the true church. Well, this new document found by Mark Hoffman was a cover letter written by Thomas Bullock in January 1865. In the letter, Bullock accused Brigham Young of destroying letters that Joseph Smith had written in which he designated his son as successor. So Mark knows the LDS doesn't want that document going public, as it makes it seem like the wrong person was chosen to lead the church. So Mark offers to sell the letter to Don Schmidt, the LDS chief archivist, for $5,000. Much to Mark's surprise, Schmidt says, eh, price is too high. Church isn't interested. Not one to take no for an answer, Mark goes back to the church in February 20, Feb, on February 23rd to say, well, if you're not interested, I'll take it over to the RLDS church. The RLDS, of course, is interested, which then makes the LDS scramble to get the letter that has become known as the Joseph Smith Blessing. But Mark decided to gift it to the LDS church in exchange for documents and books from their archives that were worth more than $20,000. Then Mark secretly went to the New York Times, told them about the letter, so that it was suddenly headline news, and less than two weeks after acquiring it, the LDS Church was forced to publicly present the letter to the RLDS Church. Which is wild when you think about the fact that the LDS Church gave stuff to Mark Hoffman, and then the to the RDL, RLDS church, but the document turned out to be one of Hoffman's forgeries. So in the end, Hoffman was the only one to benefit from this entire transaction. And Hoffman's forgeries do not stop there. In September 1984, Hoffman told a friend named Shannon Flynn that he was looking to, at buying a letter signed by Betsy Ross in 1807. Betsy Ross, of course, was an American upholsterer, who is credited with creating the first American flag. In 1984, it seemed as though Hoffman had stumbled upon the only Betsy Ross signed letter ever to be found. Shannon couldn't believe Hoffman's good luck, and he immediately contacted Wilford Carden, who served as the president of Shannon's Mormon mission to Brazil in 1978. So Cardin gets super excited about the idea of this Betsy Ross letter and agrees to go in with Shannon and Hoffman to buy it. The letter was priced at $18,000. So each man agreed to put in $6,000. Oh, but Hoffman didn't have the money. So Cardin agreed to cover Hoffman's portion and gave Hoffman a check for $12,000. It seemed like a great deal, 
especially because Hoffman said he found a guaranteed buyer and the three men would split the money that they made. Spoiler alert, they didn't. (laughs) In the mid-1980s, Hoffman had another unbelievable find. He found what some believe to be the first new Emily Dickinson poem discovered since 1955. The two-stanza poem was allegedly written in the early 1870s, written on plain blue-lined paper embossed with the mark of a paper company that Dickinson was known to use. Hoffman sold it to a collector, who later took it to Sotheby's auction in June 1997, where the poem sold for $24,150. It was purchased by Dickinson's hometown library using donations to the library and the Emily Dickinson International Society. But of course, it turned out that not only had Hoffman forged the poem, but he was the actual poem's author. (laughs) So yeah, couldn't just find a poem and write it and then be like, oh, that's totally... What that is, he made the poem himself. The vice president of Sotheby's said, quote, It's an extraordinarily good forgery. The correct paper for the period, the correct writing instrument for the period, the literary tone was quite good, and the imitation of the writing. And I would like it stated for the record that I don't care how good of a forger Mark Hoffman was. I still think he was a piece of shit. But we'll get into that. So continuing on with one of Hoffman's most notable forgeries, Oath of a Freeman. In 1985, Hoffman's visiting New York when he stopped in at the Argosy Bookshop. While there, Hoffman purchased two documents, one of which he claimed to be Oath of a Freeman. This pledge to protect the colony was printed by Stephen Day, at Cambridge Press in 1639, making it the first document printed in America and the first document printed in English in the Western Hemisphere. It has been printed in textbooks before, but the original sheet has never been found. That is, until Mark Hoffman happened to that particular bookstore in the 80s. The document was sent to California to be tested for authenticity, And when the document passed the test and appeared to be legit, Hoffman teamed up with antique bookseller Justin Schiller, and the pair planned to sell the document and split the profits 50-50. In the end, the document never sold. But at the time of the bombings, Hoffman and Schiller were in the process of attempting to sell the oath to the Library Library of Congress for $1.5 million. But as we know now, Hoffman's super rare find was nothing but an impressive forgery. Hoffman later on said that he took great pains to ensure that the ink would be similar to 17th century printing, as he knew that a document of this importance would be highly scrutinized. He said, quote, I obtained some paper from the same time period from the Brigham Young University Library. That paper... I burned in an apparatus to make black carbon. The reason I went through this trouble is I thought there was a possibility that a carbon-14 test would be performed on the ink. And while Hoffman put in considerable thought in making the document appear authentic, he made one major mistake. 
in the 30-plus boxes that the investigators had seized with the search warrant, they found an invoice from an engraving shop written out to a man named Mike Hansen. So investigators looked into nearby engravers, and of the two places located in Salt Lake City, only one of them had done previous business with a man named Mike Hansen. Investigators went to Debuzak Engraving, where the employee said that a man named Mike Hansen hired him to have a plate made with Oath of a Freeman on it. The metal plate basically works like a rubber stamp, where if someone were to cover the plate in ink, press it to paper, a copy of the plate would be left on the paper. According to the clerk at Debuzak, when Mike Hansen paid cash for the plate, he was a bit short so he had to make out a personal check for the remaining $2. Oh, come on. For $2? The check came from the account of Mark and Dora Lee Hoffman. It's always something stupid. It just is. It's wild that he didn't go, oh, okay, I'll be back. Run somewhere and get more money and come back. Because this... Oh, God. But, I mean, very quick quick aside, if I might, yeah. I, psychologist hat has to go on of for a course. second. Because that is a true, true blue narcissist. That is somebody who truly believes that they are so much smarter than everybody else that they can do that and they'll never get caught. That is, a, yeah. truly, I mean, this is textbook. It's just, because it's so stupid. Yeah. It just is. I'm sorry. Oh, I had to say. It's wild to me. I mean, to me, that is one of the most bumbling things that a criminal could do. Not only did he leave a paper trail that led right to him, but he also created a witness. Did he really think the clerk wouldn't come forward when he heard about the document suddenly being found? Like, how can you get away with selling, like, asking this guy to make this plate and then being like, oh, here's this document. I'm going to sell it for over a million dollars. That's going to be huge news. So you can't tell me that guy's not going to be like, actually, I made that plate. But he's so... He's like, so entrenched in his own mental disorder, in in my opinion. And I am not speaking, yeah. I'm not using I'm not generalizing. I'm talking about this person. And I am speculating. Yeah. I'm not an expert, but to me, he at that point had had so many successes. He had yeah. never gotten caught. He'd always that he just thought, I'm above the law. I'm just I'm so much smarter. Oh. It doesn't even matter. I'm so smart. I can do this and I'll never get caught. Like, it was that, that's what I think, but anyway. Oh, that that makes complete sense yeah. to me. But that's you what always happens. That's what happens with serial killers, too. It's the exact same MO, where it's like, they always get sloppy because they get cocky. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And also, stop it. You're not an expert? Bullshit, you're not. Thank you. <laughs> so... Hoffman later admitted to using the alias Mike Hansen as early as 1978 when he signed in at the Special Collections Library at the University of Utah. He also used the name when signing in at the Utah State University Archives Special Collections. 
the LDS Church Archives, and the New York Public Library. Hoffman said he even once bought a tire using the name Mike Hansen, saying, quote, I must have, must have felt like being secretive that day. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. And one final forgery that we should talk about, because it has, it is at the heart of this bombing. In 1985, Hoffman claimed that he found the McClellan Collection. Oh, do you hear that? It's kind of familiar. It's because it's another historical side note. I don't know why I've decided to do musical things for everyone today. I never do that, but that's where we're at. It's it's the energy. New year, new you. Thank you. Thank you. It's where we're at. It's where we're at. So William McClellan was a close associate of Joseph Smith and an early leader in the LDS movement. He was also one of the original members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and would take minutes at their early meetings. For clarity, I mentioned it very early on, very quickly, but the Quorum is one of the governing bodies in the LDS church hierarchy. For reasons that I don't know of, McClellan chose to leave the church in 1836. Some say it may have been due to the mismanagement of the Kirtland Safety Society, which was the church's financial institution. But regardless as to his reason, McClellan was excommunicated in May 1838 and ended up becoming one of the church's biggest critics. It had been long rumored that McClellan compiled all of his papers, letters, journals, and anything incriminating in the hopes of using them to destroy the church. Not a piece of the collection has ever turned up. But in 1985, Hoffman claimed he found not one piece, but the entire collection, which Hoffman claimed included at least 15 to 20 letters. One such letter was allegedly a letter written by Joseph Smith's wife, Emma Hale Smith, claiming it was actually Joseph's older brother who met Moroni and found the gold plates. Not Joseph. So, of course, that means the church is very interested in the McClellan collection, which is probably why Hoffman's asking price was $300,000. Wow. And, and soon, Hoffman was under a lot of pressure to produce the collection. He borrowed mo- so much money from people in order to acquire the collection, allegedly, mm-hmm. uh, that he, people started to want their money back. On the morning that the first bombs went off, Hoffman was supposed to meet with Stephen Christensen and retrieve the McClellan collection from a safe deposit box, which Hoffman knew was actually empty. (gasps) Hoffman had previously shown Christensen a piece of papyrus, which is basically like a really thick paper, uh, that Hoffman claimed was from the McClellan collection. Christensen was even considering buying this priceless papyrus paper. The truth is, in the summer of 1985, Hoffman purchased this papyrus from Kenneth Rendell, an autograph expert and document dealer from Massachusetts. And Rendell was planning on going to a trip to Salt Lake City to meet with Christensen at the end of October, so Hoffman knew the moment that Rendell showed up, Hoffman wouldn't be able to claim the papyrus was from the McClellan collection because Rendell's the one who originally sold it to him. But how much do we trust this Kenneth Rendell when he was the one who authenticated the white salamander letter that was actually a forgery? 
But we're not mad at Rendell here. We're mad at Hoffman. So we're going to put a pin in our anger for that guy and just move on. Without any other supposed proof, Hoffman had no way to show that he had the McClellan collection. So Hoffman panicked and came up with a plan to destroy the collection while he was creating a diversion, which is where the bombs came in. When investigators first started to suspect Hoffman, they gave him a polygraph test to find out about his involvement in the bombings. In a usual test, a negative score means the person's being deceitful, whereas a positive score means you're being truthful. However, Hoffman managed to get a score of plus 14, which is wild when you realize that Hoffman was lying the entire time. In fact, Hoffman was lying to everyone, including his own family. Hoffman had a room in the basement of his home that he kept locked and wouldn't let anyone else in. It's where he did all of his forgery and aged all of his forged documents. But his wife, Dory, never even questioned it. And why would she? He was her husband. And according to Dory, she said, quote, he fooled me every single day. Mark Hoffman was officially arrested in January 1986 and charged on four indictments totaling 27 counts, including first-degree murder, constructing or possessing a bomb, communication fraud, and theft by deception. Later that month, five counts of theft by deception were added to the charges, despite the charges and the evidence that investigators found during the 15-month investigation, Hoffman maintained his innocence. But then prosecutors started to reveal just how much evidence they'd actually found during a preliminary hearing. Hoffman realized he was out of options and it was time to come clean. So there was no trial. If there had been a trial and Hoffman was found guilty, he could have received the death penalty. So to avoid a trial, Hoffman accepted a plea deal in which the prosecutors dropped 24 counts of fraud involving forged documents. Also due to the plea deal, the sentence for the murder of Kathy Sheets was reduced from five years to life down to one to 15 years. Which, uh, what's up with that? But again, we'll we'll get angry about that later. Yep. Uh, Hoffman finally admitted that the white salamander letter was in fact a forgery and that the McClellan collection never existed. Uh, I'm, I love that I'm literally putting my finger on the paper so I remember where I was, but <laughs> what, <laughs> what angers me, and I feel the need to say it now before I forget, is that not only was he trying to fool all these people um, to make money off people, whatever, my biggest anger is that he specifically kept choosing documents that would embarrass the church in some way, and that would make people doubt their faith and that kind of thing. And it's like, what are you getting from that, man? Like, I, I bet. I have some theories. <laughs> mm-hmm. I bet you do. It's fa- No, because it is fascinating. As somebody who grew up in this, who is very yeah. devout, it is fascinating, but... Yeah. Oh, I, I can't wait. I have wait. some theories. Yep. I can't wait. Uh, so January 7th, 1987, Mark Hoffman pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree murder and two counts of theft by deception. 
Judge Kenneth Rigtrup said, quote, I do not have any authority with the Board of Pardons, but I can express my opinion and I will. Mr. Hoffman, it is my personal opinion that you should spend the rest of your natural life at a Utah state prison. Wow. Yeah. The judge sentenced Mark Hoffman to five years to life for the murder of Stephen Christensen, one to 15 years for each count of fraud, and an additional one to 15 years for the murder of Kathy Sheets. On January 24th, 1987, Hoffman entered the maximum security cell block of Utah State Prison. I guess I should have asked before I just got back into it. Do you want to talk about it now or do you want to talk about it later? No, I'm going to save it till the end because you, okay. may, you may give me other things that give me insights. But but in this moment, I do have something I do want to say very quickly. Yes. So I just want to make sure I write, write down this note correctly. So he was yeah. sentenced to five years to life for the murder of Stephen Christensen, but yep. one to 15 years for the murder of Kathy Sheets. Yes, it was part of his plea deal. So- was mm-hmm. there a reason why the man that he murdered was more valuable to them than the woman? I and the feminist, I was going to say deep inside me, <laughs> that bitch is right under the surface. Yeah. <laughs> um. The The feminist in me wants to believe the only way I can rationalize it is that bo- that first bomb was meant for Stephen Christensen. That second bomb was meant for mm-hmm. Gary Sheets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Kathy was more of like an innocent bystander. So it wasn't premeditated towards her. It was more of like, yeah, okay. You know what? You've, you've, that is a very, that is a very logical explanation. (laughs) No, it is. You're right. It's, it's the only thing that keeps the rage at bay. Like, I guess, yeah, yeah. I guess for me, I just feel like it's so interesting when we start looking at values and those two values feel so vastly different, but you're right. I understand in terms of when you're, what you're pleading to, because he pled Mm -hmm. to second degree in terms of both of them. Yes. So you would think that then the sentence for both of them would be the same. I hear you that, that, that does make sense, but you know, I just had to say it. That's all. Oh, her children have been screaming that. For years. And decades. I don't blame them. I don't blame Being them. Being like, I, and I understand that man's in prison for his life, for the rest of his life. I get that. But I also, at the other side, can see feeling like, but he only did so many years for her death. Well, it's he the should, ethics of like, it, right? Just, like, he's in it for life. What would have been the harm to leave it at? Well, you have to do five to life for her as well. And also, very quickly, because again, we yeah. can get into this more later, but we he avoided the death penalty with the plea deal. So the plea yeah. deal should have just been life in prison, period, in my opinion. Like, to yeah. me, the optics and the statement of this man that he intended to kill, it's five to life, and this woman who he didn't intend to kill but did kill, that's one to 15. It's like, that's just so shitty. Like, it's like... Just say it's a life sentence for both. He would have gotten a death penalty otherwise, or they could have, excuse me, they could have attempted to achieve the death penalty otherwise. And I'm not saying whether that is right or wrong. I'm just saying what is a fact. Um, I just don't, I just don't like that it it was the same. He pled guilty to the same charge for both. That's the problem that to me is, and I get it. If if I were her child, I would feel the exact exact same way. I'm not her child. I feel the exact same way. So, oh yeah, I find it wild that that was even part of the plea deal. 
Also, five to life. That's a pretty, isn't that a pretty wide bracket? Five years to life, one year to 15. These are big brackets for for murders. Even if you want to call the killing of Kathy a manslaughter charge, which he didn't plead to, I will add. He pled to secondary murder. So that's, again, where it's like it gets weird gray area. It's like one to 15 and five to life. It just feels... Yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, I can't wait for us to fully get into it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, 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 just, I'm, I'm there. I'm just drunk enough that I, I'm just <laughs> angry enough. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, keep keep a, a pin in that thought because at some point here, I don't know where, at some point here, uh, I found some specific quotes that Hoffman has said about Great. all of this and- I hate him. Yeah, kick it up a notch for me. I'm yeah. ready to go. Get yeah, me into not? full rage. Get me into full rage. So according to Time Magazine, at a parole hearing on January 29th, 1988, a letter written by Hoffman was read in which he rationalized the murders, mm. saying, quote, I told myself that my survival and that of my family was the most important thing, that my victims might die in a car accident or from a heart attack anyway. Okay, great. Yep. What does that have to do with anything? That, that, that's yep. not a defense at all. Yep. Oh, it, it's going to get worse. Oh, God. Hoffman was also quoted as saying, quote, At the time I made the bomb, my thoughts were that it didn't matter if it was Mr. Sheets, a child, a dog, whoever. A child, a dog, whoever. Yep. So basically... Mark Hoffman is human garbage, and I stand by that. (laughs) Yep. The Utah Board of Pardons ordered Hoffman to be held in prison for his natural life due to a, quote, callous disregard for human life. Yeah. On September 15th, 1988, Hoffman's cellmate found him comatose in their cell. Hoffman had overdosed and on antidepressants. He managed to survive the attempt. However, when he was found, he had fallen on top of his right arm. And after being in that same position for 12 hours, the circulation in his arm was cut off, which caused irreversible tissue damage. So Hoffman's forging career is officially over. Wow. Now, as part of the plea deal, Hoffman agreed to confess to his forgeries in open court including those involved in the dropped charges. He started by saying, quote, as far as back as I can remember, I have liked to impress people through my deceptions. Fooling people gave me a sense of power and superiority. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It started when Hoffman was in his teens. By the age of 14, he had already developed a technique to forge old coins. He got so good at it that one of his coins ended up being authenticated by the Treasury Department. Hoffman once said, quote, If I can produce something so correctly, so perfect, that experts declare it genuine, then for all practical purposes, it is genuine. So I just don't think that Hoffman ever really felt bad about anything that he's ever done. Nope. 
Uh, Hoffman not only forged Mormon historical documents, but he also forged the signatures of various authors in first edition books, such as The Call of Wild by Jack London and Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. He also forged the signature of frontiersman Daniel Boone, presidents Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, and poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. According to the Southwestern Association of Forensic Document Examiners, most forgers specialize in a single signature, but Hoffman could do 86 different signatures, as well as he made his own ink and created his own postmarks. Hoffman aged his documents with a system that involved a fish tank and a toy train transformer that would create an ozone that could age a document in minutes. He would also iron them or vacuum them on a metal screen and sometimes let weevils eat the paper. Like the idea that he'd go to that level, good for you. Where's he getting the weevils? I don't know. I want to say like, could you go to a pet store and be like, I have a specific creature that eats weevils? Like a creature. This isn't Fantastic Beast for Christ's sake, Christy. <laughs> Um, like a, like a, would a tarantula eat a weevil? I thought a weevil you know, was like, pretty big. Is it? Well, I thought, I thought a, they were small. I thought a weevil was, was like a, was like a weasel or like a okay, small possum. Well, vamp and I'll Google it. Well, listen, I, okay. <laughs> I do have something to say and I, I starred this in my notes and this is one thing sure. I want to say. He forged signatures in first edition books and I think that's disgusting. How dare you deface first edition books with you and your God complex. You are a piece of garbage, you dick. A hundred percent. Was that enough vamping? I, it, it was. The problem is I've, oh God, I'm so itchy everywhere. I'm just finding all these pictures of these bugs in rice. Weevils are bugs? They're little bugs. Oh I don't know if we can God. see this. Oh, that's horrifying. I thought a weevil, oh my God. I uh, I thought a weevil was something completely else, completely different. Well, I, I'm so sorry. I should have made it a side note. It's a beetle. Apparently, it's a, it's a goddamn beetle. Oh, yeah. no, thank you. No, thank you. Yeah, they're like the size of a grain of rice. They're smaller than grain of rice. So again, where you find that, I don't want to know, but gross. Okay, well, here we go. Got it. Sorry. Sorry. No, no. What you did, uh, what you did was give the people a live side note. That's nice. That that they deserved. And because I want I'm sure there were people at home that were like, what's the fuck's a weevil? And I was like, I don't know. In my head, I was probably thinking a woozle, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> what's a woozle? It's uh, have a lumps and woozles, you know, from Winnie the Pooh. Of course. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, I, I thought of something with very large teeth, like a little hairless... Weasel. That's what I, I always pictured a weevil to be. I'm sure there's also listeners who've been screaming at us for the last like two minutes going like, it's a bug. It's a bug. Um, yeah. I also want you to know, yeah. I've just written in my notes. We've addressed it. I don't need to ever come back to this, but I've written weevils. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to want to remember that. I am. Unless that's just another merch idea. I can't decide. <laughs> I don't want to put weevils on anything. No, no, thanks. no I get that. No, I get thanks. that. 
Uh, the ink was carefully made from a combination of tannic acid, ferric sulfate, and gum arabic, all of which Hoffman had purchased from hobby shops. Now, while I find the entire act of his forgery fascinating, the idea that you can copy something that close is wild to me. I'm more interested in the murders and why they happened as opposed to why he forged the way he did. Yeah. So I've read pieces of Mark Hoffman's account of the bombings, and it's horrifying that someone could be so nonchalant about taking a life. This is a direct quote from Hoffman. Quote, I knew I was going to make two bombs to kill two people. At first, I just didn't know for sure who the victims were going to be. I thought of several scenarios for the bombings. It wasn't until the morning of the 15th of October when I made the bombs that I settled on the actual targets. Hoffman said that he bought the bomb equipment on October 5th. Quote, I bought the end pipe caps, the nails and the gunpowder all at the Allied store. I knew I shouldn't buy them all at the same time, so I bought first bought two cans of the gunpowder. I carried them to my car then went back to the store and bought the end pipes and nails. I used different cashiers for both transactions. But it was but on the same day. yet you went day. to the, in the same store within seconds of each other. Which again feels more like, okay, asshole. I, I've, I've, had to, I've had enough of this man. Yeah. So Hoffman even admitted to testing a bomb, saying that he went to an area near Grantsville off I-80 where he said, quote, I connected the wire of the rocket igniter to a 50-foot extension cord, walked back to a small gully, connected the extension cord to a battery pack, the bomb went off, so I knew if I made a bomb twice that size, I could kill someone with it. Again, just cares so much about whether or not he's taking a life. The night before the first bombs went off, Hoffman said he dropped off Shannon Flynn, who had come over to Hoffman's house to chat. Then he spoke with his wife, Dory, until she went to bed at 11.30 p.m. Then Hoffman says he went downstairs to make the bombs. Quote, I drilled the holes into the pipes in the garage and made sure I picked up all the filings. It didn't take long, probably two hours or less, to construct the two bombs. I mean, they were very simple devices, not nearly as complicated as the ones in the anarchist cookbook. I'm... So glad you found something so easy to make. I also love that he just has like a knowledge of that. Yep. Yep. Uh, Hoffman said he placed the first two bombs in packages and labeled them for Stephen Christensen and Gary Sheets. He didn't know Gary's address, so he had to look it up in a phone book. Hoffman told police he even underlined Gary's address in the book, and the phone book was at his house when police executed the search warrant, but they missed the phone book. So when Hoffman got out of jail on bail before things went down, uh, he destroyed the phone book. Wow. Hoffman said he completed the two bombs around 2 a.m., mere hours before they would go off. After the bombs were complete, Hoffman collected anything that might incriminate him, such as battery packs, cans of gunpowder, the drill bits he used to make the holes in the pipe, his soldering iron, and the, even the marker he used to address the packages. 
He put the items into two bags, and he dropped off the bags in two separate dumpsters, one at an apartment complex in the south of town, and the other at the apartments where his friend Shannon Flynn lives? Why would you specifically dump stuff that could incriminate somebody in saying this person possibly made a bomb and put it at your friend's house? Your friend who he also knew had a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook? Mm-hmm. So... Were you trying to set up your friend, but you did a really shitty job? It's possible. Or was the friend involved and we just don't know that? I mean, possible. I just don't know what the friend would have gotten out of it. And the friend seems a lot more um, hardcore Mormon and mm. actually, actually like seems like a nice person <laughs> look again I, I, i'm it, i'm speculating anything but, but if you're a hardcore mo mormon and you own the anarchist cookbook that feels yeah that is odd. a good point yeah from my understanding he got it from hoffman but again why do you want it so i mean again there's a lot of questions there mm -hmm. Around 2.45 a.m. on October 15th, Hoffman put the two bags, as well as the two bombs, into the van, drove to Gary Sheets' house to drop off the first bomb. Between 6 and 6.30 a.m., Hoffman said he went to the judge building and delivered the second bomb. He said he wore gloves while delivering the bombs and that he threw them into a garbage can at the front of the judge building to, quote, test fate. <sighs> Yep. Hoffman claims the third bomb was a suicide attempt because he was, quote, distraught over the killings the day before. And I call bullshit on that. Yep. Uh, because Hoffman later admitted, quote, I felt like I would rather take a human life or even my own life rather than be exposed. Yeah, exactly. He said that he put random papers in his car so that he could fool people into thinking that the McClellan collection was destroyed in the bombing. So to me, I think he set off the third bomb to make it himself appear like just another victim. He also, when he was seen by the witness, Brad Carter, he he was like half in and half out of the vehicle. So was he making sure he was as far away from the blast as he could be while still being near the car? Because he knew it was going to go off or did it go off accidentally? I don't know. Uh, so... When asked why he specifically chose bombs, wait, I've got ahead of myself. So Mark, I don't like calling him that. It's too familiar. Not in a familiar way that I like. Mm -hmm. Hoffman. Yeah. Hoffman decided that he needed these bombs to distract from everything that was going on. He didn't want people to know... He didn't really have the McClellan collection. He didn't want people to know he was doing forgeries. So he thought if he uses Stephen Christensen and Gary Sheets as his victims, people would immediately assume it had to do with their business, CFS. But then why have a bomb go off on yourself? Because that automatically then makes it prove it's not CFS because you weren't involved in that. Which is just, again, to me, maybe another stupid mistake. I don't know. Yeah. Sorry, two sec- Sharky! <laughs> Sorry, he's eating a plant and he's going to throw up later. Sharky! 
Okay, he's down now. Sorry, it's more. We, we need to get you a spray bottle. <laughs> Honestly, he doesn't react to water. Sometimes he'll try and get in the bath. It's yeah. Anyway, I apologize. I, and people no, don't no. think that was an aggressive yell. That, that was for his own safety. He eats plants and throws up. Anyway, um, he's gotten down. He's a good boy. He listens. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> no, no. Uh, you're just real. I am just right. I'm just he's like he's like he's just too I didn't have I, I don't know if you saw me that I was looking for something to throw at him, but I had nothing not to hit him, but to throw in his direction so that it would like make a noise. <laughs> interrupt interrupt the cat. No. When uh when Evie snores at night when we're watching a movie, <laughs> if we had popcorn that night, we will take a kernel and just throw it somewhere near her and it hits stuff and she suddenly wakes up. Yep. Because otherwise, it's just a high pitch, high pitch little horn that just keeps going, and it's uh, it's adorable, but not yeah, I, when you're trying to to hear Paul Rudd do his craft. I've got a five pound one of those in my life too. I hear you. Yeah, I get that. Um, I'm so sorry. So yes, no. the business. How would that have? I hear you. Yeah. So then people start asking, why did Hoffman specifically choose bombs? Yes. As his weapon. He said, quote, the thing that attracted me to bombs as a means of killing was that I wouldn't have to be there at the time of the killings. I don't think I could pull the trigger on someone if I faced them, but I could do it if I ha if I didn't have to be around. I just love how many times he admits, OK, so I was totally going to kill them, but I just had to figure out how I just again, this man angers me so much. Yeah. So when you first look at this case, you see that Stephen Christensen and Kathy Sheets were obviously the most tragic victims, and of course, their families and friends, including Hoffman's own wife and children. His wife said that she was harassed by the media and shunned by the community, and his children were bullied at school because their father was in prison, which feels incredibly unfair to me. But the further you go into this case, the more victims that you find such as the LDS Church, who purchased a total of 48 documents from Hoffman, all of which have turned out to be forgeries. According to the Los Angeles Times, seven of those documents were purchased for $57,000, while the rest were acquired through trades. So not only did the church unknowingly pay a lot of money for fake documents, but they also gave Hoffman genuine documents that he would later make a profit off of somewhere else. Not to mention how, Hoff how Hoffman's documents caused a lot of people to question the entire history of the LDS. He caused so many unnecessary problems for them. Another victim of Hoffman's was document dealer Alvin Rust. Alvin was a big collector of all things Mormon, so he didn't mind loaning Hoffman $10,000 to buy oh. the Joseph Smith blessing, which now, of course, we know was a forgery. One of Alan's favorite things to collect is Mormon money, and one of the pieces of money that was absent from Alvin's collection were valley notes, the earliest printed money used in Utah. Valley notes were about two inches by four inches, handwritten bills that circulated briefly for a few years in 1849, starting in 1849. Descriptions of the bills have been published in various journals, but no examples have ever been found. 
And if you've been paying attention in this episode, I think you can guess where this story is going. In March 1981, Hoffman went to Alvin's coin shop with not one, but eight Valley notes. Alvin was elated. Later that same day, Hoffman went to the office of Don Schmidt, the LDS Church's chief archivist, and told him he found some Valley notes. Schmidt paid $20,000 for four of them. Then Hoffman went back to Alvin, who paid $12,000 for the remaining four. Months later, Hoffman returned to Alvin's coin shop, claiming he found nine more Valley notes. Alvin paid him another $27,000. Hoffman returned in 1982 with some Spanish Fork cooperative notes, which he sold to Alvin for $2,500. Then he went back in 1983 with another set of notes and got another $1,500. Hoffman also sold a set of those notes to the LDS Church and another set to a collector in Arizona. Uh, again, me pinning. Um, I read somewhere that Hoffman admitted if his wife was like, oh, we need some groceries, he'd be like, okay, she needs $20. Okay, cool. And he'd just whip up a real quick $20 forgery that he could go make 20 bucks off of. And it's like, at what point in their marriage was she like, God, so medical school is really out, huh? You know, like it just, to me, can you imagine that poor woman that was like, so we were going to do med school and now we're doing this. Great. And she still supported him. And then it turned into surprise. Yeah. Not like what a, uh, we'll get to her uh, in a moment. Of course. Uh, but some, some may say that Alvin Rust should have been more suspicious of Hoffman, but I still feel bad that this poor guy paid thousands of dollars for forgeries. And, whether it was naive or not, it's not on him. He was duped, and that's not his fault. Yeah. So then there's rare documents dealer Shannon Flynn, who was arrested and charged with possessing an unregistered firearm, a firearm that he was given by Mark Hoffman. Ah. Shan Shannon's reputation as a document dealer was also muddied after his association with Hoffman although Shannon claims he knew nothing of the forgeries. Shannon is the friend whose apartment building uh, Hoffman dropped stuff off at. Mm -hmm. uh, another Hoffman victim was a document collector named Brent Ashworth, who says he lost between four and $500,000, his entire retirement savings, to Hoffman. Brent traded an original copy of the 13th Amendment and a letter written by Abraham Lincoln to Hoffman for some historical LDS documents, which all turned out to be forged. Even Hoffman's own father lost money because of his son by mortgaging his house to pay for his son's legal fees. In the months leading up to the bombing, Hoffman collected allegedly $1.1 million from various victims, most of which went to pay previous creditors in Hoffman's very own version of a Ponzi scheme. Wow. Basically, Hoffman would promise an investor a huge return on their investment in this rare document, take their money, 
repay previous investors, then look for new investors to help pay for the current ones. It was an endless cycle, and none of those people are ever going to see a dime. Now that I've thrown a lot of names at you, I thought that I should at least do an update on what the people have been up to since the 80s in a section that I have very lamely titled, Where Are They Now? Where are they now? I, there is such an 80s sitcom vibe to all of this, and I'm loving it. Thank you. I'm loving it. Uh, Jeff Jeff Simmons, the curator and historian, who was the first person Hoffman took the fake Anton transcript to, he died in June 1985 after an explosion at his home. It turns out that Jeff had consumed cyanide after allegedly removing a fitting from a natural gas line that was right next to his furnace. His death was ruled a suicide. Jeff was survived by his wife and two sons. Some say there was a lot of guilt because this whole thing over the Anton transcript, like, Kind of destroyed his career. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of destroyed his reputation and that he never came back from that. So uh, Gary Sheets, Kathy's husband, moved to St. George, Utah and sold life insurance. In 1987, he remarried a woman named Diane. The couple had six children, 18 grandchildren and nine great grandchildren. Huh. Gary passed away September 2018. Oh. Terry Romney, Stephen Christensen's widow, was in court and asked about Mark Hoffman. And she said, quote, I really have no real feelings of bitterness or hate towards him. I don't want to waste my thoughts and energy on him. I have other things, more important things to think about. He's just not worth it. And to that I say, Terry, good for you. Terry has remarried twice since her husband's death, unfortunately, both of those have ended in divorce, but she is currently living her life quietly away from the spotlight as she prefers. Yeah. George Throckmorton, the badass forensic document examiner, yes. who was the first to catch Hoffman's forgeries, went on to become the director of the Salt Lake City Police Department's crime lab. He recently retired, but never fear. One of his four children is currently working at the Salt Lake Police Crime Lab as a crime scene technician and forensic document examiner. I love that I have no reason to trust that kid, but I do. (laughs) I love it. If he's anything like his badass dad. I don't know why I keep thinking that man's a rock star. I can't wait to post a photo of him and have people be like, that's your badass, huh? And I say, damn right it is. Because he caught the guy who thought he was uncatchable. Yes. And that's where I'm at. So Dory Hoffman, Mark's wife, divorced Mark in August 1988 and went back to using her married maiden name, Dory Olds. Since then, the couple's only communication has been through letters about their children's welfare. When Hoffman went to prison, Dory was pregnant with their fourth child, and she suddenly went from being a stay-at-home mom with no work experience to her four children's main provider. There was a lot that she had to battle through. Uh, She now owns her own business called School of Creation, 
where she works as a board-certified hypnotist, a Reiki master instructor, and a lymphatic massage therapist. Hmm. The forged white salamander letter currently resides in the LDS church vault, a place that people claim historical documents go that the church doesn't want seen. Mm. I don't know if that's true, but that feels like Illuminati level to me. So mm -hmm. I'm like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's where that's where I'm at. I like it. Uh, the Oath of a Freeman forged document is with the New York book de dealer Justin Schiller, who I don't think I'd want to keep that document around if it was I was told it was authentic and that I was going to get almost a million dollars for it and then find out I was cheated out of it. I, I wouldn't want to see it again. Uh, Mark Hoffman was serving his life sentence in the Utah State Prison in the maximum security cell block until he was transferred to the Central Utah Correctional Facility in December 2015. I wish I could say that he was dead, but he's not. But he's still behind bars, so that's something. Uh, even decades later, Mark Hoffman's forgeries continue to fascinate people. Not only has there been numerous books written about him, but investigators even hold symposiums where agents gather from numerous states to analyze Hoffman's crimes. To this day, Hoffman's forgeries are still popping up in auctions, and sometimes the item sells even after people discover that it's Hoffman's work. Forensic document examiner George Throckmorton said that a first edition Book of Mormon signed by Joseph Smith would be about $200,000. The book without a signature would be worth about $150,000. If it, the signature on the book proved to be Hoffman's, it would go for at least $175,000. In 1988, a sheet of paper was found in Hoffman's jail cell that listed 129 documents and signatures that Hoffman had not previously mentioned in his plea deal interviews. So until Hoffman is willing to give an honest and accurate list, the true scope of his forgeries will never be known. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Wowzer, I have so many things to talk about. Wow, this is again the audacity. That's what I just keep coming back to. I the know. audacity. And you know what it is, too, is that now it's like he's become a folk legend. That it's like if you can get one of those books of Mormon that's signed by Joseph Smith, but it's actually a forgery by Mark Hoffman, it's still going to sell for 170 or however much you said, 170000 That, to me, is the real tragedy because it feels again like there is no justice it feels again like it's like he got what he wanted he's he's uh, he's the fucking rock star he's the rock star that, that i think george throckmorton is <laughs> listen i need to google <laughs> george and see a photo everyone not in the way not in the way you think no, no i just, I just think he's a badass to, i need to put yeah. a face to a name Let's hit the bathroom, get one more yeah. drink, and we're going to come on back and give you our thoughts. And believe me, I have many when <laughs> we're talking about Murder Among the Mormons again and Mark Hoffman on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. 
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Of course, we are talking murder among the Mormons, also specifically Mark Hoffman. I have Googled George Throckmorton on the break, and let me tell you, <laughs> he is the man I feel like we all want to have as granddad. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Like, he's he's in my heart, but he's not in my Blanche list. You know what I mean? You'll be you know I mean? in my heart. George like Throckmorton, you'll be in my heart. If he's problematic, don't come for me. Um, listen, <laughs> I have so much to cover. Yeah. I just want to get right into it because I want to go through my notes because I've got lots of things that I wrote down, but then I'm going to get into my, you know, big theories, feelings, et cetera, at the of end, course. as always. So, um, First of all, well done, as always. Uh, we're coming back into 2022 and never skipping a beat, which I love. Um, first note I took, you talked about Brigham Young taking 55 wives and 56 children. And uh, I just wrote down child brides. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot. Like, uh, I mean, I could, I could talk forever about sister wives. Um, yeah, I won't, but I could. Uh, I, I, I'm not. It is not a thing for me personally. I am. I am a jealous person. I don't want to. I don't want to share my man. That's just where I'm at. I understand some people live very happily yeah. in open marriages and situations like that. But for me, fifty-five, like. Wowza. Like well, yeah. And I, and the the point that I wanted to make was just I don't judge any consenting adults who make choices that consenting nope. adults do, but yeah. I do also just want to make it clear that we are not in any way saying that we respect the choices of anyone who is taking a, a child bride in any way. Because um, no. it feels like when, I mean, and listen, I'm not speculating about him specifically, but we know that there have been stories and we do not support that, obviously. No. Uh, horrific, horrific. It goes without saying. Now, 
My next note, Kathy Sheets. You said that Gary Sheets, her husband, was taking a child to volleyball practice. And then I just wrote down, why does this make me think of Keith Raniere? Uh, for anybody listening, of course, Keith Raniere, the head of Nexium, he had a love of volleyball that is unparalleled to anybody. And literally, anytime I hear the word volleyball now, I think of Keith Raniere. And you know what I say to that? Fuck you, Keith. Volleyball was innocent until you go to hell. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yep. I'm going there. I'm going there. Um, so sweet, Kathy and her sister Joan, the lovely I sisters. Know. I was like, that feels like us. And that just made me feel so sad for Joan that she loved her sister. And then I started I thinking know. about, oh my God, what if I lost you? And then I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna cry in the this middle of this episode, and you're not even gonna know why I'm crying, and I can't even go there. Um then you were talking. <laughs> I feel like I would have known some. <laughs> I should have stopped what I was saying and gone, not me. I'm fine. Perfectly fine. I am a crier. So there may be times I need your reassurance. Just know that. Um, yeah. Then you I were talking that. about how Gary Sheets at first said he felt responsible for the bombs. Then I just wrote down evil genius. It doesn't really connect. It just made me think of bombs. It's again, like I'm not, these are chaotic notes as always. They're just in order now. Yeah, um, I'm just waiting for weevils. Gross. Oh Gross. <laughs> Brad Carter. So the man who found uh, Mark getting into his car when the explosion yeah. happened, mm -hmm. he used consecrated oil, which we know is olive oil. Thank you for that. Do they all carry that is a question I have. You may not have the answer, but it's like, did he I just have know, that on him? But he, it, uh, it was, the comment was like, yeah, which I carry with me at all times. So it's like, he does. It's like, I don't know if everyone does, but I assume that it's not like a lot of it. And then I, I guess assume it's just a small amount. My guess, and you, I'm, I'm not expecting you to know the answer to this, but like, what makes it consecrated? Did they have to do something other than bless it? Oh yeah, you need like a two people have to bless it. it. There's like a whole, there's a long way of having to do it. I learned how. I'm not going. No, to no. Do it. I was That's just curious I if it was. Like I learned how. I was going to put it in my notes, but then I was like, uh, we're already. <laughs> rattling off a lot of things no but uh yes from my understanding you need multiple people and then it's multiple steps interesting to, so that sounds yeah. to me like brad was maybe like high up in the church or at least pr like prominent in the church my i i say that because my next thing i wrote down was was brad wearing the garments under his clothes? i assume okay interesting all right i assume then it got brought up that Mark was going through to be a doctor. And this is always fascinating to me because it is the place where science and religion can intersect for some. And I am not suggesting sure. that that cannot happen for some. It, it obviously can. I know that there are doctors that are religious. And I think, you know, I've gotten into this debate before with people and, and someone said something to me once and I legitimately can't remember who, but I thought it was an interesting point that – Science can explain so much, but when you are a doctor and you are dealing with death and all of those things, for some it may be comforting to have a belief in something else. And sure. that was such an interesting – that like rocked my world because I think about doctors as being like so steadfast in science and I was like, oh, that's an interesting way of looking at that. But it does always make me 
feel I, I I just thought that that was very interesting. And then what I found interesting about that specific in terms of Mark Hoffman, of course, is that it is that he is extremely intelligent. And again, as we go now, I'm going to start building my profile, which is what makes me get hot. I like to profile. I am not qualified to. But again, am I not? When am I qualified? How, how many, many hours? How many hours have you put in? You know, I think they say 10,000 hours and I think I'm getting close, all jokes aside. <laughs> I mean, right? if, it, if we're going based on case hours, come on. Just saying. Yeah. But but again, him being very intelligent, obviously, he could not have pulled this off if he wasn't. So that's that's interesting to me. Again, that's I'm just saying that. We'll keep going. Um Okay. Sorry. I thought I saw something. I didn't. But again, the specific that he said he saw a brown pickup truck following him, had a partial plate. It's like, that probably didn't exist. Oh, it couldn't have. But right. I love that he felt the need. Like, he was so cocky about it. It was like, if I give them this detail, they'll know for sure. Obviously, I was followed. It's. I mean, it is also possible he happened upon a truck and was like make a mental note because you're going to use that of course but i am more likely to believe that there was no truck and well, it's the fact it's that one of those partial... if, yeah it's one of those if you're lying and you give way too many specific details people are like oh okay i guess they're telling the truth but that if, it's yes. how many specific details he gave like that it starts two w two w and there's definitely three, two threes in there somewhere. And it's like, that's such a weird, okay, okay. It doesn't feel like you're lying, but that speaks to me again to this man's intelligence. This man's intelligence was extreme. This this guy was off yeah. off the charts. He was very, very smart. Yeah. Um, and then you talked about the Emily Dickinson poem. And in all caps, I was like, what was this fucking poem? <laughs> Oh, yeah. There is it made me so mad because I was like, much like I got so upset about him, and I'll say it, defacing first editions of books by forging signatures. Yeah. It made me very angry. I was like, and, and as a, as, and I'll get on the woman, the woman uh, high horse for a second. How dare you? How dare you try to pretend that you're whatever? And listen, I'm sure you were very good. Again, he's very smart. But how dare you? Like, that is so offensive to me. And that should be offensive to everybody, by the way. Like, the idea that somebody could just write a poem. And again, I'm not saying that he was just throwing out any old thing. He was obviously very good at it in order for it to pass and for people to think that it was real. But it just offends me very deeply because Emily Dickinson, again you know, such a, you know, again, we'll use the terms icon, legend, all of these things, whether you like her or you don't, the whole point is, is that it's like, how dare you try and suggest that you could capture her experience? You are oh yeah. so far removed. Yeah. Um, I am just feverishly Googling, do you want the poem? Do you have it? I uh, was going to put it in my notes and then forgot, but yes. Read it. That God cannot be understood. Everyone agrees we do not know his motives nor comprehend his deeds. Then why should I seek solace in what I cannot know? Better to play in winter's sun 
than to fear the snow. I have lots of things to say. The first of all is, I am not familiar enough with Emily Dickinson's work to be able to speculate about how much this does or does not sound like her voice. Agreed. Yes. But I will say, again, this is a very intelligent man. That's a very, it sounds of the time. I'm, I, I, again, as someone who has no knowledge, I get it, whatever. Interesting, again, all being about God. I don't feel like Emily Dickinson was always about God. I, I, again, don't come for me if I'm wrong, but I feel like she was sure. kind of did a, a breadth of things. So it's interesting. Again, I only bring that up because it's going to play into my profile. So at this point, thank you for pulling that up. At this point, this is when I wrote down in all caps, psychology hat, <laughs> God complex. Uh, and yeah. I'm going to say this, and I want to preface this by saying I give no respect to doctors, to healthcare professionals. Doctors, they save lives. And I do not want anyone to interpret what I am about to say in any other way. But surgeons, for example, if you watch Grey's Anatomy, and they get into yeah. this and that too, it's like there is a certain aspect that they that that someone who does that job has to has to possess. And I say this with reverence and not judgment. You have to have a certain level of God complex. I'm using that loosely. Sure. But to to be able to cut into a human and right? Like that requires yeah. a type of person that, for example, two hosts of this podcast do not possess. So no. I bring that up only again that it's interesting to me that this is a man who was going to become a doctor and yeah. gave that up. That again, these are just as I build my profile, I'm only pointing out to you the clues and then also the funny things I write down when I'm building that profile. But to me, writing a full poem and claiming that Emily Dickinson wrote it, who one of the most famous poets of all time you could argue that is a that is a god complex that is somebody who is is like i am unstoppable like i referenced earlier that's yeah. someone who is saying i can do anything i can create anything and people will believe it i can whatever and again surgeons have to have a little bit of that to give them the ability the 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 gumption to to, to do what they have to do, and God bless them for doing it because they save lives. Again, this isn't a judgment, but I'm just saying this is somebody who took maybe having that aptitude and didn't use it for good because I think maybe he was over the edge in terms of his God complex. Instead of having a little sprinkling, he's got a whole large douse. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. But this is where I started to to start my ultimate theory, which I'm going to get to at the end. But this is when things started to come together for me because I was like, this is next level. This is somebody, again, who thinks that he's unstoppable, thinks that he – thinks that he cannot be caught, thinks that he cannot be stopped. And it was only in the moment where he was about to get caught – and I'll get to that in a second – but – that he he literally, and I'm not being glib, he literally blew it all up. It was when he knew he was about like, holy shit, 
Stephen Christensen is about to find out. I absolutely do not have these documents I claimed to. Yeah. That's when the bombs went out and the murders happened. And that's chilling and horrifying, et cetera. But again, it's, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, it, it's awful. Um, attempting to sell the oath of a freeman to the Library of Congress for 1.5 million. I just wrote down, is it that a federal crime? <laughs> I was like, can't we get him more jail time for that? Uh, again, I just, I, I'm, I'm mad at him. I'm mad at this man. Yeah. Um, then, of course, we got into his alias Mike Hansen, the $2 personal check, which to me, on one hand, it just looks dumb. But again, through my lens, I'm just like, it just proves that this God complex, this this pure, true narcissist believes he could do absolutely anything and not get caught. Now, you may not know the answer to this. Has anyone other than Joseph Smith seen these gold plates? Uh, aside from an angel and the angel who wrote them, no. Okay. I was just curious. That was just a question I, I wrote down. Um, okay. Interesting. So he said at one point that he panicked and created a diversion with the bombs in order to, quote, destroy the McClellan collection, which of course did yeah. not exist, but to make it right. look like he was destroying it. Right. So again, it was only when he was getting pushed to the point of like, oh, you're about to be revealed. That yeah. he was like, this has to happen. Now, I'm so sorry. The lie detector test. Yeah. He he beat it, right? That was what you were He did. Yes. And that is also chilling. Like, again, as I'm putting all of this. I, and I was like, I just wrote down again, like, confirm he beat it. That's what I wrote down. <laughs> because I was like. He did. Yeah. That's also wild. Because mm -hmm. then, and this is getting a little above my, um. My pay grade. I'm not a psychologist. But again, I'm like, I would <laughs> have to you? look. At, well, I'd have to look into that more deeply about how truly deeply you would have to believe something in order to, to because you can be like pathological liars, for example, can be sure. lie detector tests because they truly yeah. believe the lies they're telling. But again, I would have to look into that more specifically with him. Um, but I just wanted to confirm that detail again as I continue to do this. So when you said his quote of, when I made the bombs, it could have been a child, a dog, whoever. That's when I wrote down, okay, sociopath or psychopath. I was like, which is it going to be? And I actually think, I actually think it's psychopath. And I'll get into that at the end. But that's sure. when I was just like, it's such a blatant disregard for life it seems that he never had any kind of remorse. It seems that he was very matter-of-fact about all of it, the God complex, and then the comments that come later about how he really kind of loved tricking people. Yeah. I mean, this person is diabolical. Like, this person is terrifying. Um, weevil's gross. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> He tested the bomb in a small gully, and I just wrote, remember Fern Gully? That's not helpful. <laughs> I had not seen it till I was an adult. There you go. There you My go. husband watched it in his youth, and I did not. And so he made our children watch it at one point, and I was like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things you see as, as a kid, and you're like, this is my favorite thing in the world. And then you see someone sees it new as an adult and they're like, 
Okay. Good for you. <laughs> Was that um, Christian Slater? I'm not sure. I think so. I think he voiced a person in it, and I, I think, think so, so did Robin Williams. I think you're right. Then when you got into him hiding the evidence, putting it in the two dumpsters, et cetera, and then how he took the bombs and put them on people's doorsteps, I just wrote, yeah. thank God for ring cameras now. Like this kind of thing now, like this was the 80s. Now it's like if you had done that, you would have at least been on camera in most homes. Um, the suicide attempt, I don't buy that either. The fact that he was trying to make it look like the McClellan collection was in there. I don't know that he was really trying to kill himself. I think he's too no. much of a narcissist to really want to kill himself. Um, <laughs> me in all caps, what causes sociopathy slash psychopathy? That's what I just wrote down. That's for me, for myself. Um, my final thoughts. Uh, interesting that this overdose that he had on antidepressants didn't kill him because he had a, that overdose, right? Yeah. And then in 2015, he was still alive. One, I don't know why he was put on antidepressants because I don't think he was depressed. I, I think that's I have odd. a feeling he got them from elsewhere in the prison. Mm. But it is also possible that he planned that out and then right. lied and, like, stored them or something. Because, again, also, that happened you know, long ago, and he's still alive now, correct? Yep, he so is. So if he wanted to kill himself, he would have, is my point. I, I, I don't... Yes. I don't buy that. I am going to throw one thing out. I did very quickly research in the shitter uh, <laughs> on the break. Yeah. Because I had a theory, and I wanted to see, and I did... And listen, I have not... I have not triple-checked this as I normally would, but I just wanted to see if my theory held any water, and I did a quick Google, and of course it came up with at least two sources corroborating it, and I was like, motherfucker, yes. So here is my theory that I came up with, and then I'll tell you what I Googled literally in two seconds. My theory is this. I think it's fascinating, as we said in the episode, that everything he was doing was trying to hurt the LDS church. Now, he was taking the knowledge, which he had an immense amount of, about the LDS church and using yeah. it against them. So he's like, what can I create in order to make them panic to give me money? But one would argue, this is a man who, when his car blew up, he was wearing the vestments or whatever you want to call them, the, yeah. the um, temple the, garments. Thank you very much. The temple garments underneath his clothes. I read a different book once. I called them vestments. That's why that's in my brain. Um, so this is one somebody who seemingly is very devout to the LDS church. Yeah. And so it's like, well, why would he have done that? And in my brain, and I know that some will say, Lauren, come on. You said to me something that in the moment when you said it, I was like, this is the key to all of it. And I know, again, people may roll their eyes, but I really believe I'm right. He had a girlfriend he loved and his girl, his parents did not accept her. And he yeah. had to end that relationship because of that. And that, to me, whether it was that specific incident or that was just an example of what his entire childhood was, that suggested yeah. to me that he was growing up in a religion that he did not love. 
and that he pretended to. And when I did a Google, I did very quickly find, and I have not fully sourced this, so again, know that. Yeah. But what I did find immediately was that there is some sources that claim that he said that he gave up his faith in the church at age 14. Interesting. And I don't know what the exact age would have been when he had this girlfriend that his parents didn't like, but it did feel to me like he would have been very young. To me, and again, I don't know the ins and outs of his childhood. Obviously, I haven't dug into it. But to me, it was like stuff happened to whatever extent, and it turned him so deeply against the church. And let's just say – in the grand scheme of anything being possible, for a second. Let's just say he really loved that girlfriend and really, really wanted to be with her. And his parents were like, absolutely not. There's no way. And he did not feel in that moment that he could stand up for himself and say, no, this is who I love. This is what I'm going to do. He didn't. He then chose someone else that was appropriate for them. That, to me, mirrors a psychopath who says, I can't pull a trigger in front of someone and kill them, but I can plant a bomb and kill them. That to me is a is a parallel. Do you see what I'm saying? Like it was yeah. like, it was like he was unable to confront them in that moment. And he felt so crippled by his own inadequacy of standing up for himself that he then spent the rest of his life Proving that he was a god, that he could fool everybody, that he was smarter than them, better than them, et cetera, knew better than them. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Even though he didn't have the guts in the moment, because again, the difference between him and some psychopaths that we know are serial killers is that those serial killers can kill you and dismember you in cold blood and not have a problem, and he couldn't. He still needed to have that detachment. He couldn't have that moment of confrontation. And that, to me, is a parallel and makes me feel like, again, first of all, you're a fucking coward. And second of all, you are somebody who is devoid of the empathy, et cetera, but again, doesn't have... I'm going to say it. Don't come for me. Doesn't have the balls to just stand up and say it for himself. You know what I'm saying? Thank you for that. You're very welcome. And I don't say that in general. I say that about no. this guy because I think he's a piece of shit. But you yes. know what I mean? Like, I just yeah. think that it's – I think that it literally is so fascinating to me that that happened and then – because you don't go after – he could have very easily become – he could have become a god to the LDS church. He could have found these documents – because he was creating all of them. He could yeah. have found documents that proved everything that they believe, that that reinforced everything. No, no, no. He went the other way. And to me, that speaks to that girlfriend, hypocrisy, et cetera. It may have also been a bigger issue because I do not know, again, the ins and outs of his childhood or relationship with his parents. But at the end of the day, to me, I think that there's something there. I think he's a, psych- a psychopath. And I think that seeing that the parallel between those two things is the key if we were going to continue to dissect what exactly was his psychological connection to all of this. Making profiles for true crime and cocktails, I'm Laura Nash. Oh, 
Look, I, yeah, I don't know how far it went about this girl that he loved. I don't know why specifically she was a no for her his parents, but yeah, like I feel like that would cause quite a lot of bitterness. And then it just makes me feel that much worse for Dory because it's like, did, did he make you spend your life making you feel like you were second all the time? Like you were a second choice. I just. Well, I again, can't. but, but she also said, and I'm paraphrasing, but she also said something along the lines of like, every day was a lie. Right. Like she also yeah. said, like he, he fooled me every day or something along those lines. And he used her to fulfill his, the, the one big one. Right. So again, like. To me, it just felt like, and again, this is all a speculation, but something about that relationship that wasn't allowed to be really fucked him up. And I'm not saying that it was only that. That could be in conjunction with all kinds of things and other, you know, mental health issues, et cetera, whatever. Who knows? But to me, it was like, that's the linchpin for me, that he felt like his religion was making decisions for him that he did not want and that were making him, you know what I mean? Like, it just yeah. felt like, and I'm, I, and again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating on all of it, but I think that that's, again, that's, if we're going to, again, try and get into the profile and try and dissect why he did what he did, I feel like that, to me, would be the place I started. Yes. Oh, that makes so much sense to me. Uh, the only things that I wrote down um, was audacity, because I like how many times it came up. Yep. Uh, I also, of course, wrote weevils. Gross. Yep. Because uh, it makes me laugh. Uh, the idea of me as a surgeon, if somehow I'm before a body, and like I'm talking like the Grey's Anatomy, like we're going to put an organ in so it's already opened up i will barf i will cry and then i will pee my pants probably in that order before yeah. i'm get, i i will barf into the the body because yes I, no no interest no interest yeah i also i mean there are many kinds of doctors could i sit in an office and have someone be like oh i've got this thing you know, on my neck, and I'd look close and be like, ah, no, you should have that looked at. And it's like, well, that's why I'm here. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. Mm -mm. I couldn't, no, not interested. Um, I liked your specific usage of the word gumption. Thank you. Because it makes me think of the movie The Holiday, which is one of my favorite things because it's like Christmassy, but it ends with New Year's. So I always end my, my movie watching during the holiday season with the holiday because it starts with the Christmas that I have been watching for a month and then it goes into New Year's and then it's out. And it stars Jack Black in his prime when I think he should have been doing romantic leads and people never gave him a chance. And then Kate Winslet, who I love dearly. Um, and then I love that I wrote down Fern Gully for reasons that I have no... Yep. Uh, yep. No reason for it. Um but yeah, this makes it makes a lot of sense that it would come down to something because a lot of stuff in people's lives, it comes down to one thing. Like you can trace it back to that one moment where someone just like broke. Like for us, people are going to like look back and be like, what's that moment? And for us, it was when we saw each other 
in Star Trek uniforms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a and there's a was, before and there's an after and there's And that was a, you know? a beautiful breaking, but yeah, for for this person, uh I just feel like and also I want to make it very clear, I'm not justifying anything he did whatsoever. Nope. I'm saying nope. that there was other stuff at play as well, which I don't begin to understand, but I think that that was a catalyst of a moment for him. Oh, yeah. Because he felt like he had to be devout to his parents and the church, but he hated it. That's And I'm speculating. That's what it feels like to me. And so then it was like, well, I'm going to devote my life to fooling them because it makes me feel like I'm important to them, but I know the truth, which is fuck them. Do you know what I mean? And if his parents were described as devout Mormons, can you imagine how much it would hurt them to have documents surface that might make them question what they've spent their lives doing. So I could see that as a really big fuck you to them. Totally. Wow. Huh. Well, I agree. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Christy Oxborough, fabulous work as always. You never cease to impress. And we've started 2022. I'm going to say it on a high. I love that I thought you were going to go with a bang. And then I was like, oh, that feels rude. I so feel a high like with, feels... With the specific of this episode, I couldn't go there. <laughs> well, thank God I did. I yep. mean, just yep. a buffoon. Nope. It's nope. fine. It's... My favorite. Yep. Um, listen, thank you so very much, dear listeners, for joining us for this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. If you haven't given us a follow on social media yet, what are you doing? Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives, and of course on Patreon, patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails. And the only place to get official True Crime and Cocktails merch is truecrewmerch.com. Lots of fun stuff over there. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? Yep. I've got it in front of me if you'd rather me do it, and I'm happy to. That'd be great. It's somewhere here. (laughs) Absolutely. On the next episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Bob Crane. I'm very excited about this because I don't know a lot about this case, but I know a lot of lore surrounds it. It's old Hollywood, and I feel like that is often when we thrive. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Goodnight, Dave Grohl. Goodnight, future time-traveling us. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill 
500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.